Tetragrammaton. I was taking computer classes uh, at this place called the Creative Loop next to Goshen College, which is, I grew up in Goshen, Indiana, 20,000 people in Northern Indiana, but there's a Mennonite college there. And um, near my house, there was a, somebody had a computer class in their garage called- Was it a Mennonite neighborhood? Kind of, yeah. Goshen really had this um, personality crisis that's definitely like in my personality where the, the north side of town was kind of, the rougher side of town, and it's a very like factory worker town. There were, you know, it's it's the there's Johnson Controls was there, and and my mom, my uncle, my stepmom, and my grandma all worked at Johnson Controls, so like a real factory town. My dad was a fireman on the north side of town, but then the south side of town, there's Goshen College, and it's a small Mennonite college. And I don't know that much about the Mennonites even to this day, but I only have fond thoughts of them mm-hmm. because they're very like peacenik missionary mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. people. And so it's it's like Amish, yes. They're very, yeah. And so we had Amish also nearby. Mm-hmm. My dad lived in the country and had Amish neighbors, lived on the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad had a log cabin in, in, in the woods. We lived on this, my mom lived on the south side of Goshen, near very near Goshen College. So the kids I went to school with were either the kids of factory workers or the kids of Mennonite Goshen College professors. So there's this this amazing combination of you know, blue collar and college town in a way, but, but you know, this Mennonite college town. Yeah. So Creative Loop was a computer class that was in someone's garage. And I, st- I finished the class and then taught the class. What year was this? So I have a card. I, I think it says I'm a level two computer programmer and it's 1983. I can so show you. So in 1983, that. does everyone have computers yet? No, Tell absolutely me not. Nobody has computers. I was gonna say everyone had an Atari, but that was three, four years later even. Okay. You know, so like it really was, you know, the Apple II was, you know, it, it, I think it was really expensive. I would love to know kind of what percentage of was, my- Did the Apple II have the kind of green screen? It was a one color screen and it was just text? You no, know, in that day we had a color screen on that Apple Apple II Plus. I'm remembering what happened was we had an Apple II Plus and then my stepdad got an Apple IIe and the Apple II Plus moved to my bedroom. There's a photo I should show you that's so funny. It's me, probably age nine, sitting at an Apple II with like, you know, some music poster above my head. I'm wearing big brown Koss headphones, K-O-S-S, yeah. with, the, with the volume slider on the side. Yeah. There's a shitty guitar here. There's like a Yoda puppet wearing 3D glasses. I, I showed it to Hedvig and she was like, oh my God, it's all there. <laughs> um, and that was what I did. I just like, I, I played around on the computer. I played games, but I also did like basic programming and that was it. Do you think your place in the world has more to do with being a first mover and being early or does it have something to do with the way you think and the way you see the world? I think it has to do with the way I think and the way that I see the world. You know, I grew up in this, in this small town and I never felt like I fit there. I felt my parents the same way, you know, neither of my parents live in that town anymore. My mom did, did our kind of ancestry and found out that one of her ancestors was married to someone who was on the Mayflower. 
And I, I think about that, especially now that I live in Europe, because so often I come to Europe and people are like, what's it like to be the American? The Californian is actually how they think of me. The Apple guy who came you know, to, to Paris. I'm like, you know, I did my 23andMe and you know what it says? It says I'm European. <laughs> and I, I think when you reclassify America- You feel more like you've gone home? I feel more like, again, if, if my mom's ancestor was married to someone who was on the Mayflower, yeah. those people were crazy, crazy people. They left comfort to come to total madness. Explorers. I, you know, I, I said this to Gary Vaynerchuk last year, you know, because he was, he's like got a stadium full of 15,000 digital asset collectors at this VCon conference that he does. And I said to him, I said, do you feel like you're bringing people to America 300 years ago? Because it is undoubtedly the land of, the future and the land of opportunity. And also, a lot of them are gonna die. That's what it was like to come to America 300 years ago, but that's exactly what our ancestors did. And I feel this sort of restlessness in my mom especially. My dad was looking for sort of perfection in a way. He wanted to, he wanted to get like, how do I get you know, more of what I like, mm-hmm. I would say. My mom is just restless, always moving. So there's definitely that in me, but also we lived in this small town and I, I really, you know, I've gotten over my bitterness, but in my 20s, I, I had a lot of bitterness toward where I grew up because I really felt like I had to unlearn what I was taught there. I felt like they wanted me to conform and, and I just couldn't do it. I, you know, what happened and, and the way it connects to the computer story is my mom and my stepdad divorced when I was around 14. And we went from having computers in the home to not having computers in the home, from having a little bit of money to not. My mom quit the factory because it was moving to Mexico and went back to college to become a nurse and spent five years doing a nursing degree. But during that time, she's working nights. I'm going to school, you know, a lot of macaroni and cheese and frozen burritos. And for me, it was just skateboarding and punk rock then. It just fit. And, but that was so different. We were the only skateboarders in our town. Like, you know, our culture was Thrasher Magazine, Transworld Skateboarding how do you get Magazine. Into, how do you get into skateboarding? If you're the only one, it's hard to even know about it. Exactly. So This is pre-internet. Exactly. So Northern California, my stepdad's sister lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I, I, Ann Arbor was actually super influential on me. because First of all, my parents are all music fanatics. My dad, my mom, my stepdad my brother and sister. There's just always music in the house. Always, always, always. It's the only thing I remember. And what, what um, do you remember the music in the house being growing It really up? depended on the person. So my dad you was- You were the baby. I was the baby. So my brother, lot, my brother lot, was- Right, your, your, your brother and sister were way older. Eight and nine years older than me. Okay. Exactly, half brother, half sister, eight and nine years older. So for my brother, I mean, I literally got a record collection from my brother because like he outgrew his Kiss records Mm-hmm. handed them down to me. But I also remember my brother like reading me Rush lyrics because he thought it was like high poetry, right? And I'm like, rap, listening to my older brother tell me what he's doing. My sister, you know, was all, all this like kind of great pop at the time, like early Sammy Hagar and the romantics. And I can remember like driving around in my sister's Mustang listening to the first Brian Adams record, which was like, I still think it's like, well, that's, these are great. This is a great- Great pop songwriting. Pop. Yeah, exactly, pop songwriting, exactly. Um, now my mom is, is still an Americana music expert, truly. And my like dad- country or? I say Americana because the way Americana stands 
in opposition to radio country. Yeah. Americana, I think, is interesting because it's the, one of the only genres that's defined by what it's not. Mm. Like it's it's basically if it's not radio country, then it's Americana, mm-hmm. and that can pull in everything from Taj Mahal to Bonnie Raitt to Lucinda Williams to Jimmy Dale Gilmore and the Flatlanders mm-hmm. to, and you know, so my dad had every Willie Nelson record and every Bob Dylan record. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't know this story, but. Hedvig asked my mom and she told her that the the way that my mom and dad kind of met and got together was at like 3 a.m. at a diner after the late factory shift. And I th- I can't remember which one of them. I think my mom had a copy of Blonde on Blonde and it was, do you want to come over and listen to it at three o'clock in the morning? And that's, you know, how my, how my mom and dad met. So, and then my stepdad, you know, he would come home every night and just sit in this striped chair and listen to music. He was a music fanatic, a record collector. What and was his taste serious. like? So he, he was into contemporary music. I mean, he had an amazing record collection and the guy was a dealer. I'll tell you what I mean by that. And like, he really knew how to drag me along, but he was buying new music. So in the eighties, he was listening to the talking heads and the Eurythmics and REM and, I never, actually never liked that stuff as a kid and a teenager because it was like what my parents listened to. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents listened to REM. I wasn't gonna mm-hmm. listen to REM. But, you know, I was into heavy metal and I remember my stepdad was like, have you ever heard Blue Cheer? I was like, no. He gave me a copy of Vince Abyss Eruptus, you know what I mean? And my head exploded, yeah, right? I remember hearing that for the first time <laughs> and my head exploding. And I mean, I, and I remember being like 13, 14 years old and he was like, have you ever heard of Velvet Underground? And I was like, no, you know, and then, and then I also had friends in high school, Chad and Greg Miller were super influential. I mean, they were, because I, I was much more like when I got into straight edge and minor threat, then I got into straight edge. I was like all the but way. But still to, pre-internet, how do you know about it? How do you even find out about it? Well, first of all, magazines. So Transworld Skateboarding Magazine, you could buy at the Hallmark store. Mm-hmm. And then we found Thrasher. And I, I do think this is important because then I found Maximum Rock and Roll. Mm-hmm. And, but you had to drive an hour from Goshen to South Bend, South Bend being where Notre Dame is, and you go to Trax Records. And for there, you could buy the newsprint, Maximum Rock and Roll. So I would make my mom. That was monthly? Yep. And I would make my mom, and it came out of Berkeley, right? It mm-hmm. just felt like a portal into another world. Mm-hmm. And I would make my mom drive me to Trax. And like, if they had anything I wanted, but they didn't. An entire record store with nothing I was interested no, in. No, it was right? mainstream music. Because it was mainstream music. Yeah. So I would get a copy of Maximum Rock and Roll instead, and then you read the oh, like- mail order for And you for would mail singles. order. I would have my mom write checks. Yeah. I would give my mom my allowance or the money I made washing dishes or yeah. like cleaning up the fairgrounds or whatever I did to make money. And I would give her my money and she would write checks. And so I would, would you order like direct from SST? Direct from SST, alternative tentacles, but also all these, like I have the first Operation Ivy seven inch because I remember when it came out yeah. and it was in Maximum Rock and Roll and the mm-hmm. review was good. So you ordered it from Lookout, you know, Lookout Records in Berkeley, California, and along with Isocracy and the first like Neurosis seven inch or whatever, you know I mean? Mm-hmm. It was it was just punk rock, but so I was there and I was- And like, did you know any punks at this time? No, no, nobody. And there was, you know, we made a punk rock band that no one ever heard. Mm-hmm. You know, what did you do in the band? I played guitar. Cool. I can show you that video, it's funny. Yeah. And we just did covers of Misfits and Black Flag songs. Mm -hmm. Misfits, Black Flag, Minor Threat, and then like three originals. What's the first punk show you ever saw? The first punk show I ever saw was my friend Ryan Timmons' dad drove us to Chicago to see, it was Bastro, 
which was actually used to be squirrel bait, and it was very Louisville. Dag Nasty was Dag Nasty's last show, which I didn't find out until a few years ago, but I was like trying to find the flyer for the show, and I mm-hmm. found it on Dag Nasty's site. Youth of Today Youth of and Today. Rollins Band. Wow. But it wasn't Rollins Band. It was the Henry Rollins Band. Yeah. It was Lifetime had just come out. Mm-hmm. So it was Rollins Band, but it was billed mm-hmm. as... And for us, it was like, isn't that the guy from Black Flag? You know what I mean? Like Rollins wasn't who Rollins means to us today. Yeah. It was like the most recent Black Flag vocalist mm-hmm. was really what he meant to us. We went to see Youth of Today. Yeah. We were straight edge kids. Yeah. You know, and it was at the Cubby Bear in Chicago, right across from Wrigley Field. And to me, it was like, you know, you there's 50 people in the audience and you turn to your right and Rollins is standing next to you while you're watching Youth of Today. Mm-hmm. And that was life-changing, mm-hmm. totally life-changing. And by the way, I'd seen lots of concerts at that point. I'd seen everyone from Kiss with Wasp opening up, ACDC with Fastway opening up, you know, and then the concerts that my parents took me to, Linda Ronstadt and Ted Nugent and whatever. But that was so different, right? Sitting in the bleachers in an arena, yep. you know, watching... Blackie Lawless hand out posters of his dick mm-hmm. compared to being in the room in a tiny room with the band that you're listening to at home and you feel like, ah, I could be on that stage as yeah. easily as them. We're just all together here. So yeah. yeah, that was you know super influential on me. But then I was just gonna say that another thing that was really key for me is is Chad and Greg Miller because where I was very narrowly focused on scenes in a way, right? Like I went from kind of heavy metal to skateboard rock in a way, you could say. And skateboarding and punk rock were together for you? For sure, that was definitely because, but it was just because of the people. I mean, I was listening to heavy metal, but there was, you know, TSOL and Agent Orange in Thrasher. So I'm like, well, what's that, you know? And then, you know, this kid who had a, Firebird moved from Florida and he had Minor Threat Out of Step on cassette and he had Agnostic Front on cassette and Dead Kennedys, you know, and it was just like, wait, you know, and then you just keep going. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, you know, it's hard to imagine the era of the internet, but I remember seeing Steve Cavallaro, skateboarder, wear a Misfits shirt. Mm-hmm. I think I spent two years looking for a Misfits recording after mm-hmm. that, you know. That's how hard it was to get, especially yeah. in Goshen, Indiana. It wasn't like you could walk into the record store and buy a Misfits yeah. seven inch. It didn't exist. But Greg and Chad Miller, they were into music. And that was like mind expanding me. They were into Johnny Cash and the Stooges and Digital Underground and the Ghetto Boys. You know, and this is like, you know, as I went on time, I remember like driving to community college, my first year of community college or IUSB. My mom tells me not to call it community college with Greg Miller listening to the Ghetto Boys record that you made. Mm -hmm. To them, it was all the same. Like Howlin' Wolf and the Ghetto Boys were the same to them. Mm -hmm. I learned that from them. Mm -hmm. James Brown, Sly and the Family Stone, Parliament Funkadelic fit together with the Stooges to them. Mm -hmm. I didn't see that and they did. You know, they were, they were, they could also be like, oh yeah, um, Dear Prudence is the greatest song ever made and here's why. They could bounce from the first Digital Underground record to Dear Prudence and and that almost like musical athleticism, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I feel like Mojo Magazine represents today Mm -hmm. in a way, Mm -hmm. that I learned that from from those two. So then to put the bookends on this, and I, I do think that this probably does sum up my personality. Like if we've 
covered Goshen, Indiana, and then like having computers for this period and then not having them and just being skateboarding, punk rock, and also really feeling like pretty oppressed by Goshen, Indiana. Like I didn't fit in at all, you know, at my high school. Like I remember, you know, a teacher in my face, you will never amount to anything. Like really, cert- she was sure of it, right? Yeah. I remember like, you know, the jocks from the high school literally trying to run me over in their car when I was skateboarding. You know, it was, it felt like as a teenager, it feels very real. It feels like war. It sounds like it actually was. Yeah. And then, you know, my girlfriend gets pregnant when uh, we were 17, totally like head over heels as well. Like, you know, she, Zoe's mom really felt like this huge respite from this city. She's cool and smart and she didn't feel like you met her at school Goshen, indiana i actually met her through her brother i skateboarded with her brother long story short and i met her through her brother and so but she's pregnant so okay what do we do well, you know we didn't know what to do we just sort of put one one foot in front of the other i ended up going to iusb indiana university south bend because my mom did no one in my family anywhere went to college before my mom and okay, if she can do it, I can do it. And my friends were taking these computer classes and I was just helping them with their homework. And I was still in touch with my, pre, my former stepdad, still am today. And I was like, Mike, you're not gonna believe it, but I'm actually like, I still remember this stuff. I'm like helping you know, my friends with their schoolwork, computer programming. He was like serious as a heart attack. He goes, Ian, change your major right now. I was like, oh, no, no, I don't even, I'm looking at these computers. I don't even know what they are. Like, I've never seen these things before. Like we had these apples. These are these IBM clones. It looks like total foreign world to me. He's like, they're all the same. And so Zoe's mom was the valedictorian of our high school. We actually went to Indiana University Bloomington proper on her scholarship. I walked into the guidance counselor's office and said, I want to change my major to computer science. The woman said, uh, handed me her business card and said, email me. I nodded my head you know, and walked out of there and was like, I gotta figure out what email is. You know, I had no, <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. And that was, that was it, you know, you just took the classes and, and that, that is who I am. I mean, I was always that music fanatic record collector, but then I had this like love of technology. So to answer your question, I don't think it was necessarily about being on the forefront, but I, I guess I feel like, I guess that's where it's exciting. You know, even, even yeah. now, you know, doing crypto stuff when it's incredibly unpopular. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like where I'm supposed to be. And you talk about the Mayflower and that kind of, um, you're looking for something that doesn't, that isn't there yet, that we don't know is yet. You're looking, you're an explorer. And I, I like And it, it fits with your, the fact that you've done as many things as you've done, different things, all really interesting and somewhat different than the last thing you did. Yeah, and I, I, to me, I'm always looking for the foundation. Like, where, where does this come from? And I also just think I have a belief that things will change. There's something in that, you know, that the fact that, you know, so one of my high school teachers told me I would never amount to anything. It goes together to me with the fact that, you know, in 1999, everyone told us, well, the internet will never scale. Everyone will never have broadband. And in 2008, people told us, well, I mean, everyone will never have a smartphone. You know, and then when Uber came out, people said, well, that's a nice thing for rich people, right? And, and so to me, it's all this, it, this is all the same. It's this like, it's, it's, all, it's like the, the validation that people understand how important the Stooges are today, right? Yeah. Where at one point, 
it wasn't. To, that, these things are the, yeah. you know, what is it that, you know, people say about the Velvet Underground, everybody who, you know, they sold 2,000 copies, but everybody who bought one started a band. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing. I had a conversation with Iggy, and I said, the Stooges were at the same time as the Beatles. Yeah. Yet we think of the Beatles as 50 years ago, and we think of the Stooges as it's current in some way. Totally. And I asked him, why is that? And he said, it's because we weren't popular when we were together. Right. It's like we're more popular now than we were then, whereas the Beatles were popular from the beginning. So we knew, everybody knew about them then. Yeah, they're a part of the culture of that time. Exactly. The Stooges are a part of the culture of the late 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. You know, I mean, I remember seeing like Watt and Thurston and like reviving the Stooges in the 2000s, you know, doing it on stage at UCLA, you know, so yeah, it feels totally contemporary. I think another theme for me is that, you know, technology, we like to think of ourselves as these like sovereign creatures and technology is a tool that we use. But I actually think that the lens that I look at the world through is that technology continues to reconnect humanity, whether that's the printing press or train travel or automotive or air travel it's always about or the connection. internet. Yeah, it reconnects humanity. And when you reconnect humanity, you change humanity. Also, I think that the growth of population means there's no way to go back. You know, there were a billion people in the year 1900, 8 billion people today. You cannot go backwards. Like, so a combination of, you know, technology and just overall growth continues to push us, you know, into new places. And I think when you believe that, then, well, now you go, well, where does it go? You know, what is new? Of course it will be different tomorrow. I think some people would like tomorrow to look like yesterday. And I fundamentally do not. I know that tomorrow looks different. And then the question is, well, how is it different? Welcome to the house of macadamias. Macadamias are a delicious superfood sustainably sourced directly from farmers. Macadamias, a rare source of omega-7, linked to collagen regeneration, enhanced weight management, and better fat metabolism. Macadamias, are healthy and brain-boosting fats. Macadamias, paleo-friendly, keto and plant-based. Macadamias, no wheat, no dairy, no gluten, no GMOs. No preservatives, no palm oil, no added sugar. House of Macadamias. Buy roasted with Namibian sea salt, cracked black pepper, and chocolate dips. Snack bars come in chocolate. Coconut white chocolate and blueberry white chocolate. Visit houseofmacadamias.com slash tetra. How did you first connect with the Beastie Boys? So when I, I studied computer science at Indiana University, and I had a kid, a baby, I needed a job. So I went to the work study building, and you fill out this form. What are you interested in? 
Oh, I was actually, what are you studying? Computer science. What are you interested in? Music. That was, I think that was literally all I wrote on the paper. I got a job at the Indiana University Music Library. There was a guy, Dr. David Fenske, who had this vision. He's talking, you're talking 1991 now. But he had this vision that we were going to move from reserve listening materials behind the desk. So you want to come, you're in M101 and you need to listen to Wagner and you put your headphones on and listen to all of that being on workstations throughout the library. It was a crazy vision in those days, but he was paying me for a work study job and I said I would, you know, I would build it. So you just start coding. There was a card catalog. We put multimedia records in the card catalog. So there was already say an album in the card catalog and then we would just add a little URL to it. And then, you know, we would stream that URL first from a computer under my desk to a computer on top of my desk. I had an IBM R6000 under my desk with a multimedia file system, which was a new thing, and a next computer, next slab on my desk. And like I wrote in Next Step this basically client that would search the card catalog, and if it found a multimedia record, it would stream the song. The first songs we did were Also Sprock by Wagner and, and then Freddie Freeloader <laughs> from Kind of Blue. I remember it because I did a demo for IBM. IBM was kind of sponsoring the research program at you know Comdex. And I was, I was in a booth kind of next to, IBM also had Gallagher on stage. So every hour Gallagher would do this show where he would put everything into a trunk and then a ThinkPad would come out, right? It was like, what if you had a way to write and a way to, you know, like, and it would all go into the trunk and then a thing, and then he would smash a watermelon, of course, and then we would go into the parking lot and smoke a joint together. But I was just like wearing a, you know, a polo shirt and playing Freddie Freeloader for people. So I had written all of this on Next Step and then OS2, which was an IBM operating system. And everyone was like, well, you're gonna write this for Windows or Mac, right? Like for a platform that people actually use. I really didn't want to. But there was this brand new thing called the World Wide Web. It, I think only existed for X Windows at the time. It was invented by this college student who was about my age, maybe a year older, at a neighboring somewhat university, University of Illinois, Mark Andreessen. And we got like early copies of Mosaic, I think it was called, for Mac. And then there was a different one for Windows. But I, my idea was if I, if I can make this thing a web application, then I won't have to write it for Windows and Mac. And so that we, we ended up making the second ever music-related website for the Indiana University Music Library. You know, you have to imagine, it's like, there's nobody doing it. There's no... No, no. and there's no audience. There's no audience No, you're, ma- you're making something for nobody. Exactly. My audience was just the library. Yes. I was like, okay, and if I can... You had go- a job. Exactly. If I can make it in this way, then yeah. I won't have to port it. Yeah. Right? That was the impetus. But then... I was, okay, so I was, I was the keeper of the Beastie Boys FAQ on Usenet. FAQ being the frequently asked questions list. And the way the internet worked in those days, it was just a bunch of message boards, like Reddit, basically. And so I was like very active, as you can imagine, in, there was alt fan Frank Zappa. There was alt rap. This guy, the, the homeboy from hell, would do these amazing um, reviews of every new album that came out. Uh, is that stuff still online if you wanted to read yeah, it? Yeah, there is. There's, all this stuff's been like archived. Oh, cool. Yeah, like the, the Homeboy from Hell reviews would be funny. I would I love, love to know what that guy's doing now. You know, I think like probably in those days, 
all the David Bowie lyric transcriptions on Usenet, probably half of them had come from me. Um, you know, this is just what we did. It was like, we felt like we were archivists yeah. and we had to do this work. Yeah, so anything you were interested in, you would figure out a way to document it and put it online. Yeah, and the BC Boys to me, actually, I remember the, I was a fan of the punk rock. I, I, I first heard the Beastie Boys on the New York Thrash compilation, the Roar cassette. So that's where I came from. And I remember when Lysis what song? Ilk, what song was on that? Uh, I think it was Riot Fight. Riot Fight. Riot Fight. <laughs> and maybe they had B-E-A-S-T-I-E on that one as well. I can't remember. But that, What else was on that cassette? Do you remember? That, yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely Bad Brains. Mm -hmm. um, that was like... My like life changing, and that was because it was a roar, and then there was the Bad Brains Roar cassette. So yeah. we went from like New York Thrash to the Bad Brains Roar cassette, which was just like I didn't realize then, but that's like as good as it ever got. But you also had like um, was that just called Bad Brains the Roar cassette yellow cover? Yep, it was just called Bad Brains. It was just called Bad Brains, mm -hmm. and then it's been called the Roar cassette since then. But that's what that's what it was. But also on that New York Thrash cassette, you had like um, I can't remember all the all the bands. I mean, there was that song. I hate music. I love noise. <laughs> I, I can't remember that. the name. It was like, you know, but, but then there was a song like China White. There was, um, it's a great, it's actually worth, worth mm -hmm. listening to. I feel lucky to have had that cassette. So when License to Ill came out, I was actually like, what happened? You know, I thought Fight for Your Right was totally cheesy. Yeah. Um, it, I, it was years later that I appreciated License to Ill. And actually, I became a Beastie Boys fan because of Paul's Boutique. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned yesterday, I love when you said that you remember buying Back in Black and Germs GI on the same day. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember buying an SST record by the Tar Babies called Honey Bubble, 1989. We were driving to, the, to Lake Michigan. My friend Ryan bought Paul's Boutique. I bought Tar Babies Honey Bubble <laughs> and off we go to the beach. Turns out he hated the record for some reason. I think he wanted Fight for Your Right yeah. and he got Paul's Boutique, yeah. so he gave me the cassette. And I just remember sitting on my floor, headphones on, reading the lyric sheet, and I didn't know what happened. It's like, it who, was so cool. Who are these guys? Yeah. They, they made a record out of my record collection. You know, at that time I was, I was into like James Brown and Parliament Funkadelic, but also Hendrix, and mm -hmm. also the Beatles in my past. And you know, there was so much, I, you know, here's a little Johnny Cash snippet. And I was like, oh my God. Someone in hip hop, you know, like, you know, throws in Johnny Cash into a hip hop record. What? And so I was just became a fan. And then when I got to college, one of my best friends was as big, came to college, a bigger Beastie Boys fan than me. And then, you know, I went to college from 90 to 94. So 92, Check Your Head came out and we were just like, whoa, it went further. You know, like they're playing instruments. They did a hardcore cover of a Sly and the Family Stone, like Slime the Family Stone, Small Talk is one of my favorite albums. I grew up listening to punk rock and I, I actually loved hip hop as well, starting again from skateboarding. Like I remember, you know, going skateboarding at Cranbrook with a kid who was playing Public Enemy and just like, I heard it for the first time. I remember hearing, you know, Jennifer by De La Soul on like Notre Dame radio, you know, and, and just like, it sounded like it came from outer space to me, right? I remember hearing NWA for the first time and I didn't know you were allowed to say these things. And so I already had all of that, but to me, like, Check Your Head went even further in kind of packaging it into something that really felt relevant, like, to me. Mm -hmm. Didn't feel like I was observing someone else's culture. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was really my culture. Mm -hmm. 
And so that was what I did. I like I kind of kept up with the Beastie Boys stuff online. And then this there's this new thing, the World Wide Web. And I started putting everything that I would that I knew about the Beastie Boys into the site. And I'm an obsessive person. I think anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And I just it became pretty much it was it was, I think I'm just guessing you know, being as objective as I can. But I think if you were just come on the internet in say 1994 and you were looking for things to see, the Beastie Boys website was probably something, even if you weren't interested in the band, it was something that you saw because it was clearly the work of a crazy person. Yeah. It was like every every magazine article scanned and put online. And then what happened was, you know, we had recorded, me and my friend Nate, and record, they were on Letterman. We were in Indiana. And this is, again, just all, you're doing all this as a fan. Just as a fan, absolutely. And we, they were on Letterman, and we, rec- we recorded it into his computer and made a little QuickTime movie of it, and we had it on the internet before it aired on the West Coast. And then the next day, I get an email from Bethann Budenbaum. Do you remember Bethann? She worked for Silva in those days and said, hey, uh, the Beastie Boys manager would like to talk to you. And I was like, oh shit, the jig is up. You know, like I, I figured it was copyright infringement, but I also figured it was the, inter- the internet and nobody cared. I'm like, okay, and that was it. I mean, I mean, John, what happened? Tell John, me about the call. John called me and I was like, yeah, you want me to stop doing this? He was like, are you kidding? He's like, will you do this for all of my bands? And I was like, uh, sure. He's like, all right, well, let me know what you want, what, what I need to pay you. And like, he had like the Breeders and Sonic Youth. And then there was other weird stuff at Gold Mountains. There was this like comic book thing called Rocket Comics. They had Bonnie Raitt. They had, you know, it was Gold Mountain Entertainment. And so me and my friends started building websites for them for $8.50 an hour. That's what we charged them. Mm-hmm. I remember we had a fistful of yen is what we called our, our company named after the the Kung Fu segment in the Kentucky Fried movie. Mm-hmm. And we had a whiteboard that said, Fistful Yen, turning Rockstar's movie into fun since 1994. And that was what we did. We got we thought it was a, an amazing gig because to be honest, building websites, the easiest thing I'd ever done with a computer. You know, like you just put- yeah, And it was fun. Putting text and image on a page. And it was fun. And we started, we did a bunch of, I mean, we had really had fun. We I met this guy, you know, Jim Evans, who did, the Taz poster art, and he had a real vision for what the internet would become. And then the Beastie Boys, it was summer of 94, Beastie Boys came through Indiana. Beth Ann calls and she says, do you have tickets to Lollapalooza already? You know, because it was, remember that Lollapalooza was supposed to be Silvapalooza. It was supposed to be Nirvana Beastie Boys. Mm. Turned out not to be Nirvana Beastie Boys for tragic yeah. reasons. It was, it was Smashing Pumpkins Beastie Boys. But also, I was kind of over it, to be honest with you. Like, I, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of ill communication. Mm-hmm. And I don't, didn't, I liked punk rock shows. I didn't like big rock, big shows. I'd seen the Beastie Boys so many times on the Check Your Head tour, and it was amazing. And I was like, there's no way Lollapalooza's like that. You know, I just, I was that punk rock kid that wasn't interested in Lollapalooza. Mm-hmm. And so I said, no, no, thank you. Thanks, though. And they were like, what? Like, they thought I was the biggest Beastie Boys fan on the planet. So, of course, I'm going to want to go to Lollapalooza. I just... I still love the band. I just didn't think Lollapalooza was for me. Mm-hmm. Also, I didn't want to be the guy like, hi, I'm the kid who made your website. You know, like I. You'd never met the band at this point. No, not at all. And I talked to Silva, but mostly I dealt with Beth Ann, mm-hmm. even, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, I just kind of did what they told me to do. They would send me a FedEx package with some albums in them, and I'd put them on the internet, in a way. 
So much of today's life happens on the web. Squarespace is your home base for building your dream presence in an online world. Designing a website is easy using one of Squarespace's best in-class templates. With the built-in style kit, you can change fonts, imagery, margins, and menus. So your design will be perfectly tailored to your needs. Discover unbreakable creativity with Fluid Engine, a highly intuitive drag-and-drop editor. No coding or technical experience is required. Understand your site's performance with in-depth website analytics tools. Squarespace has everything you need to succeed online. Create a blog, monetize a newsletter, make a marketing portfolio, launch an online store. The Squarespace app helps you run your business from anywhere. Track inventory and connect with customers while you're on the go. Whether you're just starting out or already managing a successful brand, Squarespace makes it easy to create and customize a beautiful website. Visit squarespace.com slash tetra and get started today. Did they already have their own website? No, 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 no so one did. what you made, your fan site turned into their website? Mm -hmm. No, no band had a website in those days. Absolutely nobody. You know, the one thing that existed that was related to you was the ultimate band list. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Geiger and Steve Rogers, Mm -hmm. had had done that and, and that's how I met them because there were like five of us doing music on the internet. Mm -hmm. Charles Como in LA, Rob Lord in San, Santa Cruz, Steve Rogers, mm -hmm. you know, through through Geiger. Yeah. And I, I got found through Jason Fiber who worked down the hall from Silva in Dave Allen's at World Domination. So there was one computer in the building and it was in on Jason Fiber's desk in Dave Allen's record label. It was, just, it was nobody. There's nobody on the internet. It was a ghost town. But it was exciting, you know. Anyway, they called back and said, you know, the, the band has never seen the internet. They're really curious what you're doing. Yeah. You know, would and, you come show really, it to them? Nobody had. Nobody had. Yeah. Well, and, and so I was like, oh, of course. Like, if they're actually interested in it, I would mm -hmm. love to come show it to them. I would love it. So I go to Indianapolis, had one of the craziest days of my life. Like, sort of like this foreshadowing of the rest of my life. Yauk was the warmest, most welcoming human being you could imagine. And I think back on his warmth and like the way that he just sort of brought, he's like, you're here now, basically. Gave me a skateboard that day, wouldn't let me leave. I mean, literally by the end of the day, after I had like played basketball, Billy Corgan had, you know, George Clinton feed me spaghetti off of his fork. I'm like, where am I, right? What world am I in? I was like, guys, yeah, I came to show you the internet. Do you wanna see it? Yeah, I was like, come to Detroit. Where, where, just come with us. It's like, I have a three-year-old, I need to go. I drove back to Bloomington, picked up my daughter, drove with Beth Ann to Ghost, Indiana, dropped Zoe at my mom's so I could go with them to Detroit. And then in this room, showed them the internet on a slow dial-up, monochrome Apple laptop with a trackball in the middle, Mike, Tamra, Yauk, Horvitz probably not in the room, didn't care. And then two people in the room who had seen the internet before, Mark Geiger and Matt Sweeney. Yeah. 
Geiger saying that the internet was a year away, which is, totally fits with where Geiger went after mm-hmm. that, right? Mm-hmm. Because he was so sure and spent all that energy on Artist Direct. Like mm-hmm. he had the vision, mm-hmm. he was just early. And then Sweeney being Sweeney was, hey, have you ever been to something.nl, which is the Netherlands slash Tilda Thor? It's like this black metal resource. Like he had, I'd never met anyone who had URLs memorized like, like that, like I did actually. Um, so <laughs> that was 1994, summer 94. And the L7 women were in the room as well, I remember, because mm-hmm. they were on that tour. So that was it. And that was just the start of it. And to their absolute credit, the Beastie Boys got it immediately. I understood why they were actually interested and they didn't just see it as something for nerds. They come from punk rock. And I always say that if you ever made a zine with a Sharpie and a photocopier, then you understood the internet the moment you saw it. And that was them, Yao Ked Milarepa, and you know Mike had Grand Royal. And they both wanted to know, how do we talk to people without the radio and MTV? Like we want to talk to people directly. We want digital fanzine, essentially. Exactly. They saw a digital fanzine. And so I think they deserve a ton of credit for that. Summer of 94, they were all in. Yauk wanted to do everything on the internet. You know, the first thing we did was Milarepa. So that was that was how we got started. I actually moved to LA to work at Grand Royal. Well And was Grand Royal the magazine, the record company, and it was more than that. Yeah, it, I mean, it started as telling t-shirts, right? And then I think that actually the genesis of Grand Royal is very internet-like, and I wish we could start it today with today's technology. Because really, Grand Royal started because... And stores too, no? Kind of. They were more, not really. I mean, I, I really think that the Beastie Boys and, and all the people around them, Spike, Eli Bonners, et cetera, like they, what they did was... And which is the same thing that a great designer like Jonathan Anderson or what Pharrell does for Vuitton, et cetera, is you're building the culture around around your your band in a way, or your brand, right? In the case of what Jonathan does. You know, Jonathan Anderson, as an example, with his brand, JW Anderson, or with Loewe, he gets involved in adjacent cultures, photography, ceramics. And Jonathan can do a collaboration with a ceramicist who makes tiny ceramic penises, and then the very next day do a collaboration with Uniqlo or Converse. That feels very Beastie Boys to me. You know, in, in it's not I only do this one thing. Like with Kanye, when he said, when I was in Chicago, I felt like I was in a box with music. I feel like I'm in a box. I've got to get out of the box. I think there's something similar there to the way the Beastie Boys did their thing. And, and for that, for them, it was totally natural to do X large and Top Shelf Records, and Grand Royal, and a magazine, and a record label. And I think it was all just sort of, you know, what I was gonna say is they said, if you would like the lyric sheet, I can't remember if it was just send a self-addressed stamped envelope or a dollar, I think it might've been a dollar, to this address in Glendale. In Check Your Head, it said that. And Mike told me there were like garbage bags full of envelopes, right? And they didn't know what to do with them. And I don't know if it was Mike or who, but one of them said, if we just send these people a lyric sheet, we're idiots. Like there's something here. Like we ha- and I think that's again, that punk rock thing. That's where Grand Royal Magazine came from. They're like, let's make a magazine. And all of us, myself included, I can remember opening my mailbox in Bloomington, Indiana and getting that little card for Grand Royal issue one. It was like 
Would you like Grand Royal Issue 1? Send $9 here, whatever. And that's kind of how it went. And then, you know, their friends, you know, Gabby and Vivian had Luscious Jackson. This is a great record. No one wants to put it out. Why don't we put it out? Mm -hmm. You know, and then Mickey from Ween had a side project called Moist Boys. (laughs) Like, why don't we put this out? Still a great record. Grand Royal, which I was a part of its final incarnation, along with Silva and Gary Gersh, like the magazine though, the more serious it got, the worse it got, the further you got from the source. Like the, the magazine, issue one was underprinted, issue two was overprinted. Then they had a distribution deal and it was, there was supposed to be a calendar and it was sort of like, okay, well now we're on this treadmill and we have to do a magazine every quarter and the same thing with a record label, right? I'm like, oh, well now we're a record label and we've, you know, we're not just stumbling into anything anymore. We have to go look for things. So I, I think that uh, you know it cuts both once, ways. Once you have that pipeline and you have to fill it, it's different than when you're making something out of inspiration. Exactly. I, I was lucky. I actually you know did a tour with them in '95. Actually, Mike called me and said, "Hey, we're going on tour in May." I was in grad school for computer science, and I had a kid. And he said, "We're on tour in May." You know, they're they were, still living in Indiana. Still living point. in Indiana, and we didn't email then, right? With those guys, you called, and usually you left a voice message, and you got a call back, mm-hmm. right? And so Mike calls, and he's like, you know, we're going on tour uh, next year, and we've got we're taking Millarepa with us for the listeners. Millarepa was a Beastie Boys not for profit that was dedicated to promoting compassion through music. First of all, how cool is that? But that's what they had in '94. But they they knew that no one really cares about the not for profit, and we wanted they wanted something exciting to draw people over. Do you have any ideas? I don't know, let me call you back. So I call back, leave a voice message. I'm like, okay, you know what would be cool is we're working on this CD-ROM. We're working on a Beastie Boys CD-ROM that was like a collection of videos. It was a QuickTime VR of G-Sun Studios. And as you moved around and clicked on the pictures, videos would play. And that was kind of like a video game, a Beastie Boys video game that played videos. So, so why don't we take the, the, the CD-ROM and we get old video game machines and we put Apple computers inside of them and we make them like a Beastie Boys video game that you can walk up to and, and play. So I get a call back from John Cutcliffe. He's like, okay, uh, the band loves the idea. Uh, we're gonna need a budget. Uh, pre-production's in April, Universal Studios in LA, so we'll need you there. We're gonna need to actually buy these video game machines, um, so I don't know if you can help us source those. And I was like, oh wait, I, um, there's been some kind of misunderstanding. Mike called, he asked me for an idea. I gave him an idea. Yeah. I'm in college, I have a kid. I don't even know how to do it. Yeah, uh, it was just the idea. Yeah, you should probably find someone who knows how to do it. Yeah. And John Cutcliffe changed my life in one sentence. He goes, you want to do this, kid? We'll figure it out. And I called Zoe's mom and I was like, I think the BC boys just asked me to go on tour with them. And to her credit, you know, we're not together. We live across the street from each other, basically. Mm-hmm. She goes, you got to say yes to that. We'll figure it out. And I just felt like, okay. How I old are you now? 21, and we did it. A lot of it thanks to JC, by the way, because I didn't know how to do it from a production standpoint, but they were really fucking cool. We had these like plexiglass things. We like took these old video game machines that I bought in Indiana. But also nobody would know how to do it. That's the thing. It's like, it's not like you didn't know. It's like you're doing something new. You're making something new. And not knowing was- It's part of it. Was part of the gift. It's part of it. If we'd have known how to do it, we wouldn't have done it. Of course. Because those things were not road worthy. Yeah. Imagine this too. 
You know how you go to a place like uh, Madison Square Garden and it's all union and you're not allowed to touch your gear. Mm-hmm. So it's May of 95. I've got homemade video game consoles that you have to take out of an anvil case, these Apple computers, and I have to direct these union guys how to connect it all. I'm like, okay, take that box, put it there. Okay, take that cable. No, not that one. Yeah, are you gonna plug it in? Nope, nope. The place where it looks like it goes. Yep, uh-huh, there you go, okay. Like me for an hour, because I'm not allowed, in, you're not, not allowed, allowed to touch, to touch your it. gear. Not allowed to touch your gear, it's union. So this is like bizarro land. I did it again for the 98 tour and I knew what I was doing. And we put everything in an anvil case. Like, so you could just literally roll them off the truck, pop the faces off, plug them in and everything worked, right? But in the first time it was really janky, but really fun. In dealing with big companies, whether it be record companies or any of the corporate entities that you've had to interact with, tell me about those experiences. So I've, I've worked in, I guess, three or four big companies. We, in 1999, we sold Nullsoft, which, which made Winamp, Shoutcast, and ultimately Nutella to AOL. So we worked for AOL. My business partner and I started another company after that called Media Code that we sold to Yahoo. And I worked for a great human being named Dave Goldberg for a number of years, and then I took over for him as the head of Yahoo Music. And then uh, with Jimmy, built Beats Music, sold Beats and Beats Music to Apple, and then went, built Apple Music at Apple, and then went to LVMH, which you could also say is a big company. So I guess that's four, four big companies. But you also dealt with record companies regarding uh, rights. You, you've dealt with a lot of big companies. Absolutely, and that was, that was a, you know, in the, in the 90s, that was really, really, really interesting for me. And actually, I think I got a lot from it. First of all, I came to LA, and I'll never forget, my first feeling was, when I dealt with Capitol Records was, oh wow, I care more about your product than you do. I was like, you guys go home at night and watch television. Wow, I don't. I go home at night and listen to records. And on the weekends I go to Aaron's Records and Fat Beats and like, you know, I I just, I remember that realization that like record label people were often people with jobs, Mm -hmm. which I thought record label people would be people that were obsessed by music like me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was one revelation. The other thing though is, they're great people. Like I, I, the man went away from me mm-hmm. because there were great people who really took care of me. People like Liz Heller. When I came to LA, like we did the very first time that music had been streamed live, a live concert had been broadcast on the internet. It was Spearhead at the House of Blues. I don't tell you the date because it was my birthday in, ni- in 1995. And Liz, of course, shows up with a birthday cake, right? We were doing this work thing, which was streaming a broadcast from the House of Blues on the internet. Mm-hmm. But Liz cared a lot about me as a human being. So when, when you talk about big companies, I think of that. I think of the time that, you know, that those people put into me as an individual. You know, even you know, Gary put a lot of, Gersh put a lot of time into me as Silva for sure. You know, Silva was at my daughter's wedding a few months ago. You know, it's like, so you really, you know, they're big companies, but it becomes quite familial. There were also times when you really felt like it was a big company. So mm-hmm. 1998, the 1998 Beastie Boys tour was incredible and I wish all of it was recorded because Mixmaster Mike made it so fun. The band had no idea what he was going to do until he did it. Uh-huh. Every single night they'd make a set list, Mike would look at the set list and he would decide, and he was dropping things that you were hearing on Power 106 at the moment and the band would have to do slow and low over it. 
yeah. right? It made it really fun for them. Yeah. And there were so many moments. It was like jazz. It was, exa- it was like free improvisation. There were so many moments when the beat would drop and they would turn around and look at Mike like, no, you didn't. And he would look at them like, yes, I did. And then yeah. they would have to go with it. Yeah. It was really magic. It was yeah. fun to watch every single night. That's great. So I started recording bits of it and making MP3s, which was a very new thing. This is 1998. And you had to you know, tell people what to do with it. You know, It wasn't like, hey, I made an MP3. It was like, this is an MP3. You've got to go get this program called Winamp. And then you can listen. But you know, people didn't know how to do it. Even to, I remember being on the bus at night and I would encode them from the command line. I would take them out of the DAT player, or it was like a mini disc maybe, I don't remember. You know, then you had to encode them mm-hmm. and then post them and then tell people what to do with them. But then Capitol Records, who I thought were my friends and Mike thought they were his friends, were like, you cannot do that. Like, we like you, but this sets a terrible precedent. You are not allowed to do this. Um, we were like, what? I remember Mike got his, um, got, he got one of, I was really jealous. He got one of those uh, Wall Street Journal like dot drawings of his face. You know, Wall Street Journal. I don't know what those are. Wall Street Journal, you know, in, in the Wall Street Journal, if, if you get a cover story or inside, they, they do like a little drawing of you. And, and this story about like Capitol Records versus the Beastie Boys, because the Beastie Boys were releasing MP3s on their website it became oh i see and they were releasing beastie boys music on their website whereas capital owns that and sells exactly. that and you're not allowed to give that away exactly and well and, and it was more than that too because what i was putting up was like mixmaster mike opens the show doing two copies of tom sawyer right i wanted that to be out yeah. there i was like yeah. no one's heard this you yeah. know you got to hear this yeah. but that was a record label being a record label now i didn't really experience it though until i was at yahoo music and I, I saw so much terrible record label behavior in, the, in those days because, you know, post-2001, things... And, and I actually really... I, I, was, I was in a very weird position because, you know, Napster happened and we were at, I was at Nullsoft. We knew Napster, Sean Fanning, well. He, we all hung out in IRC together. I was the one that called the IRIAA and said, hey, are you going to let this pass? Not because I wanted to tell on Napster, um, but just because I was like, if you're going to let this go, then we're going to be in this business, yeah. right? Uh, you know, when you want to understand the lay of the land, exactly. I'm looking at this, going, "There's no way this is legal," but here it's happening, and they didn't even know about it. They're like, "Oh shit!" We ended up then creating Nutella, which we we were like, "Wait." You're just suing Napster? Like, this makes no sense. You know, I was trying to license MP3s from the record labels. You know, I had the biggest MP3 community on the planet with Winamp.com. And I was like, why don't we just sell MP3s? Um, Sort of naively. And the record labels first said to me, well, what's an MP3? Second, absolutely fuck no. And I remember saying, I I remember who I had the conversation with, but what do you think you're going to do? L-M-N-T, Element Electrolytes. Have you ever felt dehydrated after an intense workout or a long day in the sun? Do you want to maximize your endurance and feel your best? Add Element Electrolytes to your daily routine. Perform better and sleep deeper. 
improve your cognitive function, experience an increase in steady energy with fewer headaches and fewer muscle cramps. Element electrolytes. Drink it in the sauna. Refreshing flavors include grapefruit, citrus, watermelon, and chocolate salt. Formulated with the perfect balance of sodium, potassium, and magnesium to keep you hydrated and energized throughout the day. These minerals help conduct the electricity that powers your nervous system so you can perform at your very best. Element electrolytes are sugar-free, keto-friendly, and great tasting. Minerals are the stuff of life. So visit drinklmnt.com slash tetra. And stay salty with Element Electrolyte. L-M-N-T. Was the concern that if you sell an MP3, then the MP3 can be copied endlessly exactly. for free? Exactly. Yeah. And I remember someone in the music business saying to me, well, we're going to sell compact discs forever. I was like, no, you're not. I was like, it's as, it's as easy for me to make an MP3 from a compact disc as it is for me to give you an MP3. Like, this is over. Yeah, it's the same. And so we made Nutella. So at Nullsoft, Justin Frankel made the Nutella protocol. And it was completely distributed. He just gave the code away. So it's, it's basically open source? It's, yeah, he open sourced it. That is a story unto itself because... What we realized was that there was no way to sue Napster, right? And I think that this is quite just the same way there's no way to shut down Bitcoin. Like there's a, there, there's a, there are these things that are fundamental. You know, For me as a technologist, I was like, wait, distribution is trivial. And that's a technological reality. And it's almost like physics at this point. So unless you're also going to shut down email and the web, then you're not going to shut down the fact that it's trivial for me to transfer bits to you. So what you can do, though, and maybe probably should, is make sure that people can't run a business on copyright infringement, right? So, you know, I remember, you know, when Napster raised $70 million, which was a ton of money in those days, I remember texting, well, on IRC, so chatting with Sean and saying, Sean, don't take the money you cannot build a business on copyright infringement. I just was like, you're gonna drive the car off the cliff. Like, it so was clear to me. So if Napster didn't take money, what would have happened? Well, I think that you had this incredibly unique moment where there was this thing that was technologically possible and in many ways inevitable. And it was completely misaligned with like the business realities of the moment. And Sean, I think in so many ways was perfect because he was smart enough to build the program, but not smart enough to not do it, right? Not smart enough to say, oh, this is probably copyright infringement and I shouldn't build a business on it and I shouldn't take a big check from venture capital because then I put a big target on my back, right? At the same time for us, we'd already sold our company to AOL. So we were just sort of interested in like, where does this go? Like we know that compact discs go away, but we don't know where this goes. Um, it was it was brand new. There was no iPod. Did you there have any no thoughts of where it could go? I'm trying to be honest about what I thought at the time because yeah. I know by 2000 or 2001, I knew it was subscription. You know, but, w- but when, in, in when Napster got sued, what could the record companies have done that would have been smarter? Well, 100%. And what I told them every single day is. 
listen, I have an audience of people who like MP3s. Mm-hmm. This is a new format. Mm-hmm. They want music in this Just format. Just treat it like a new, another new format. Exactly. They're telling you they want this format. You should give it to them in this format. It was that simple. For me, the answer was sell MP3s. Mm-hmm. Right? And nobody wanted to do that. They all wanted to find some way to use digital rights management. Microsoft was pitching them on this digital rights management. Mm-hmm. You had, I mean, at the time, you know, Rhapsody was getting started around 2000, 2001. I mean, mm-hmm. you had mp3.com which was like- What did Rhapsody become? Rhapsody, that's a, it became Napster actually. Really? <laughs> yeah, because Rhapsody was Rob Reed and Rhapsody was, I believe, standalone. I'm going from memory here. I believe it was standalone. Then I think it got sold to real networks. Then once Napster was just a brand, Chris Gorog, I don't know if you remember him, bought the brand. And then there was a point, and I'm trying to remember now if this was Rhapsody or not, where MTV bought the whole thing. You know, everybody wanted to try to find their, their, their way into some kind of a subscription service. Mm-hmm. Here's the lineage from my perspective. And I do think this relates to where we are today with crypto and blockchain. You had this thing that's technologically possible, therefore inevitable. You know, Napster was just kind of exploiting that in a gold rush moment, right? There was this perfect timing where there was a gold rush so you could raise money for copyright infringement. That's insane. But there was a moment in time when you could do that. And Napster did. But then, you know, all the pieces come crumbling down. And, you know, you, they, have to get, they have to get picked up. With Nutella, it was in some ways a bit of a nail in the coffin. Because, and that was our, all, for me at least, that was intentional. Right? I didn't write Nutella, it was Justin Frankel, but spiritually for me, I was like, guys, you cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube. Let's just fast forward to the end of this as quickly as possible so we can move on to what's next. Time Magazine called and got Tom Pepper from Nullsoft on the phone and said, isn't this for trading music and, and movies? And Tom said, no, it's, we built this to trade recipes which is so clever. It was his way of saying, this is about so much more than trading movies and music. It's about everything. It's about- Trading everything. Distribution of bits is trivial. Mm -hmm. And you have to accept that and now build the industry with that assumption. Mm -hmm. And I think that just took a very long time. And and there were a lot of machinations. And I think so, so much of the story is so interesting because, you know, Tony, Fidel, and Steve Jobs built the iPod. But then the iPod, the Apple store, and it was really Steve Jobs, with a lot of help from Jimmy, actually, convincing the industry to do this. But if Apple hadn't been only 2% of the market, it probably wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Jimmy convinced the industry, he's like, guys, why not? You know, Steve Jobs guy knows what he's doing and he's good at marketing. Mm-hmm. It's a great product. And it's only 2% of the market. Yeah. Who cares? And they're, and they're not gonna do it themselves. Exactly. So let's let it. Let's take a flyer and see what happens, mm-hmm. right? And all the rest of us, and I say the rest of us because I was at Yahoo building on this Windows Media ecosystem, but other people were as well. Rhapsody, Virgin had a music service at the time, you know, it's, et cetera. Everyone trying to compete with with the iPod, but the iPod had this advantage because they owned the whole stack. Clayton Christensen in The Innovator's Dilemma says that when the technology is not yet good enough, the integrated solution always wins, right? So Apple was the integrated solution and the stack that we were on was this disintegrated solution. You know, we were 
Windows plus Windows DRM plus MusicNet plus Yahoo plus a media player from Toshiba, Samsung, iRiver, Creative, uh, Rio, you know, like all, you know all, all of those totally disintegrated, more like Android, where a- Apple was more like iPhone. And I think what's, what I find so interesting about this is that you knew it was coming, but you couldn't predict what it was. And there were so many people doing it. If you went to a music tech meetup in San Francisco in 2001, 2002, there were, hun- there were 150 companies there. Most of those companies would be out of business in just a few years. And if anybody would have told me in 2002 that the company that would crack the model that we all believed in would be Swedish and they would start with Europe, I would have laughed my head off. Like, yeah. you're insane. That'd be like you telling me that, you know, the kid in the wheelchair from Degrassi High who lives, who's from Toronto is going to become the world's biggest rapper. I'm like, no fucking way. That makes no sense. Maybe Atlanta. Yeah. But if not New York or LA, it's not going to be Toronto. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. But that's what I love about these things is that in 2007, it was impossible to predict the iPhone would be a success. Yeah. I love that. And I, I always, I think of that today, like, okay, we just had ECC conference, you know, the big crypto conference in Paris, full of amazing companies. Probably most of them will be dead in 15 years. When did you first hear about crypto? 2009. And what was your immediate take? So. Yeah, Parker Brooks in my office told me about Bitcoin and was like, this is so cool. I'm like, what is it? And so you know, I did the deep dive and got to the point where I said, well, this can't exist because this threatens state sovereignty. And if they got rid of Napster, LimeWire, BearShare, et cetera, then they can get rid of this. And I, I really believed it was a parallel because they didn't get rid of file sharing. You know, torrents and everything still exist they did get rid of it as a business. There was no business operating on the business of copyright infringement anymore. It had been put into the penalty box, right? Like, so yes, there was still plenty of ways to get free software and free music, and, but they had said, that's not a business, that's illegal, and we're gonna throttle it, and we're gonna promote these you know, industry-approved ways of getting music like Spotify, et cetera. So this was 2009, so Spotify would have been new. And also the internet was becoming not the internet at that point. That was another thing I, I was afraid of and believed. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have it today. If Apple doesn't like your app, then your app doesn't exist, right? And so that's not the internet. The yeah. internet is anybody. Free. Yeah. Everything's open. Everything's free. Anyone can try anything. Exactly. You register a domain name, mm-hmm. yahoo.com. If people come to your domain name, you win. Mm-hmm. That's not the app store environment. So mm-hmm. I... I, in you can still do it, but you won't be in the app store. And you, and you won't have distribution. So 2009, 2010, when I saw Bitcoin, I was like, this is super interesting. I think that they'll put the kibosh on this the same way they did Napster. But there's not a company to sue in the case of Bitcoin. But there wasn't a company to sue in the case of Nutella either. And they had managed to get rid of any company that had built on the Nutella platform, mm-hmm. on the Nutella protocol. Mm-hmm. So that was what I thought was... Well, you can't get rid of this Bitcoin thing, but you can make sure that nobody in the financial world touches it. And so then what happened, which I thought was incredibly interesting, is it just got ignored long enough and in the meantime got big enough that game theory came in, in a way, where, well, now it's too big and there's too much value in the ecosystem, so there's too much at stake 
in shutting it down. What is the value in crypto now? It's around a trillion mm-hmm. in the total market cap. You know, it was over a trillion when things were hot last year, and mm-hmm. it's under a trillion today. But it's it's it's, around on, it's on that order of magnitude, and it'll easily be ten trillion easily. Mm-hmm. Like there's just no question. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the part that people will find interesting is because it's hard to remember. Like we look now, and we're like, oh, Spotify and Apple Music and YouTube and. But man, there was a time when YouTube was the most illegal thing on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, everything on, on YouTube was copyright infringement. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it still is, honestly. Well, and they've back, but, and they're, if you think about it, they're the only company that's ever done the Indiana Jones, like bag of sand and the amulet trick, right? They've gone from being totally illegal to being legal, you know, and there is a way to make money, mm-hmm. right, behind it. But that was not a foregone conclusion at all. And again, you have to remember all the naysayers all the way through. You have to remember, you know, the internet's never gonna scale, everyone's never gonna have broadband. I had a senior AT&T executive tell me in 2002 that we'll never do video on the internet. It wasn't built for that, it's too lossy. You know, Apple stock took a hit when they launched the iPhone because everyone's never gonna pay $500 for a smartphone. Like when Google paid what they did for YouTube, everyone thought they were idiots. When Facebook paid what they paid for Instagram, everyone thought they were idiots. When Facebook paid what they paid for WhatsApp, everyone thought they were idiots. And I, I love this, of course, because, you know, when I, you know, I come all the way back, like when I wore like Bermuda shorts in the sixth grade, I got made fun of. And five years later, those same people were wearing Bermuda shorts. Yeah. So I feel like I've seen this movie so many times. Yeah. And that I think is the, that's the pattern matching that I'm always looking for. And also why I say like, I'm always looking like for the fundamentals. You know, it's never a trend. It's always actually an anti-trend. But you go like, what's real here? Isn't there something real? It's just, it's the Stooges. It's so fucking real. Yeah. Like, of course Funhouse is gonna be something worth listening to 30 years later. It's so primal. And I feel like that that's the that, that's where these things are are the same. In, in I was in 1992, I was making beats with a next computer, like copying, pasting, like sampling movies, sampling David Bowie, and copying and pasting and making songs that I liked. Mm-hmm. I was like, why doesn't everyone do this? Like, why are people using these eight second samplers? Like, shouldn't you be doing all this on a computer? I thought I was just like young and dumb and there was something that the smart music people older than me knew. Later I realized, oh no, they will eventually. I'm just like a little early to the party. And so you have to look for it and you go like, oh yeah, this is real. This is, you know, totally doable. And I feel the same thing today. You know, I was trying to pay somebody, you know, using my banking application on my phone with the, you know, I'm using a French bank account to pay someone in another country and typing in the IBAN and the BIC and the, and then I'm getting denied and then I'm waiting three days and then I'm like, oh my God, like, of course this isn't the way this is done 20 years from now. Like, of course. We're in this place today where the technology that I use to get into a party at an NFT conference is superior to the technology I use to enter America. That changes. You know it does. I don't need any old person to tell me, no, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. I don't care what you say. Of course it does. But then the part I love is we don't know how. You can't predict that it'll be Spotify. Mm -hmm. You can't. You know, everyone would would have bet against the iPhone. It was more logical that Microsoft would shrink the computer and Windows 
into a handheld device than it was that Apple would upscale the iPod into the smartphone. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have bet on that in 2003, mm -hmm. 2004, 2005, even 2007, you would have bet against it. Even after you used the iPhone, you would have bet against it. Mm -hmm. That's the part that I love. You know directionally where it's going, but you know you're going to be surprised by the possibilities. I also think in many ways that's very scary because I think the internet has taken us to places, you know, as excited as I was about the internet in 1995, there's this moment in a boardroom in LVMH, LVMH CEOs on one side of the big conference table, managing director of LVMH, Tony Belloni next to me, Ben Arano in the room. I know myself, and so I leave my cell phone at my desk, uh, right? Because um, if it's in front of me, I'm gonna pick it up. Everyone in the room, is, including Ben Arano, is on their phone. And Tony Belloni stopped the room, and he's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I just want everyone to notice that the only person in this room not on their cell phone right now is our chief digital officer. <laughs> and I said, Tony, I was one of the first people on the internet and I intend to be one of the first people off. And he goes, always an innovator. <laughs> but there is something about it. Like to me, it's not just about the technology. Mm -hmm. It's like, where is this going? What is this doing to us? How mm -hmm. is this reconnecting humanity? And what does that mean? Do you um, have any, any projections for like, what do things look like in 20 years? I always like to ask this question of like, my daughter and I just did a podcast series. And at the end of every podcast, we ask people, what do you think that thing is that seems crazy today, but will just be taken for granted 20 years from now? First of all, big picture, I think it's worth mentioning. I think reading The Network State by Balaji Srinivasan, I don't know if I'm saying his last name correctly, is important. I think it's, a, it's an important read. It's very challenging. Whether you like Balaji or not is irrelevant. But this notion that we're moving from God to state to network, that if we were alive in 1500, the final arbiter of truth would be God. After you know Nietzsche and the French Revolution, that became the state. It's not thoughts and prayers. It's like someone should make a law. And now the final arbiter is the network. And that seems futuristic until you realize that a few years ago, the networks unseated a sitting US president. They silenced a sitting US president. And you realize, oh yeah, that's already here. The network already has a bigger constituency and more power than the state. And then you also realize, you know, you would say, okay, well then the states aren't gonna go quietly. So that means there's probably gonna be warfare between state and network. And that seems future. And then you go, well, wait a minute, isn't anonymous? Sean Karasov would be proud. At war with, you know, the Russian government, they are. You know, they're doing very real things in a combative way, network state, anonymous, versus state state, Russia. So I think that directionally is correct. We're already in a place where we care more what our network neighbors think about us than our physical neighbors, right? You know, you and I are Americans, deaf American, American recording American, American music American, love Kid Rock, friends with Kid Rock Americans. We're real Americans, yet we don't, you and I don't really live and exist under the American government for the most part, right? We pay our taxes in the US and spend part of our time there and, you know, but we're very much network citizens. So I think that that is 
20 years from now, that is probably the, the biggest thing for society. I think there are these smaller things that are just fun though. And to me, they, this is where I think about, cause I think about like product direction and like what's the next most valuable thing to build. So do you think that the, the idea of the digital nomad is like, that's where things are going? You know, I, I, I think that the internet fundamentally moves us from mass market to massive niche. I think this is where the world that you and I like love, and I think we, we sort of share this love of what media has brought us in a way. But that- Explain but, that, I don't understand. What, what I mean is like, you know, whether it's music or, you know, the television that we grew up watching, like we're very much products of the technology that was available at every moment in our life. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to speak for you, but I certainly wouldn't be who I am without cable television and VHS mm -hmm. and HBO, mm -hmm. and then ultimately Spotify, Apple Music, right? Mm -hmm. or, or, or like, you know, and to me there is, but, but there is this like very consistent progression. In other words, like, let's say that, that the moment was the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, like where everyone watched the same thing. And you actually can't separate that from the popularity of the Beatles. The Beatles were as good as they were. So that was what allowed them to keep going. But everyone knew who the Beatles were because of technology, in fact, right? It's mm -hmm. a moment that cannot possibly come back. Mm -hmm. You know, and this, this plays out in other realms, you know, like, when I was at um, the JP Morgan conference last year and I'm watching a bunch of old white billionaires sit on stage and pontificate on when are we going to get back to a more centrist political dialogue? That's like saying, when are we gonna get back to the Beatles? It's like saying, when are we gonna get back to a world where there are only three channels on television? Well, guess what? We're not, you know? Yeah, the example that I give often is when The Godfather came out, everyone you knew saw The Godfather and then at the Oscars that year, it won Best Picture. Now, if you find out what are the pictures coming, you know, Best Picture of the Year Oscar, there'll be 10. You've never seen any of the 10 and no one you know has seen any of the 10. That is a great That's example. That's the difference. That is a great example. Yeah, because everything everywhere all at once, you know, we didn't see it until after it won the Oscar. Mm -hmm. And when we saw it, we couldn't believe it won an Oscar, mm -hmm. right? We loved the movie, by mm -hmm. the way, but it just seemed too, far afield from the mainstream. We're like, wait, other people love this movie as yeah, much as we like do? In some ways, the mainstream stopped being the mainstream. Okay, so Jeff Jarvis is the best spoken on this, I think. And I love him as a voice on this because Jeff was the, the editor of People Magazine in the 80s for sure, maybe even 70s. And what he says is that it used to be that you could just take whatever was on television and put it on the cover of the magazine and it sold. But I think it was in the 80s when he's like, that just didn't work anymore. We had to create this new thing called celebrity, right? And what I like about it is he talks about how culture started to move away from mass before the internet. And he attributes it to VHS, cable television, because what you had was an expansion of consumer choice, mm -hmm. right? And so I think, you know, like we were you know, learning about Stax Records earlier and you, you can't separate who they were from the distribution of the time, mm -hmm. right? And they had to get into that, but they also weren't Motown. And Motown was Motown partially because of distribution. Stax wasn't Motown 
partially because of technology and distribution and access to capital and access to other things, and Atlantic was Atlantic, right? Like, these things were, were not only about the music, they were also about, you know, these very physical things. It was difficult to get things in front of people's ears. Mm-hmm. So now you have this like kind of infinite consumer choice. So I think that just keeps going. You asked if I thought digital nomadism was, was kind of um, the future. I think the future is just tribalism. So there will be tribes of digital nomads. Mm-hmm. There will be tribes of like true Americans. And I think that this is what is happening. You know, I had this realization many years ago, and I think I'm, I'm wrong. I'm just kind of oversimplifying so that I can make sense of where we might go. I was like, well, if you just sort of follow this out, there's only two possible outcomes. One is global government. Mm-hmm. And the other one is everyone relocates to kind of fit their ideals, mm-hmm. which also sounds crazy until you think about a ski town. You know, like the example I always use is that I think, uh, you know, very difficult to elect someone who represents the ideals of Goshen, Indiana today, the way it was possible when my dad was a kid. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you could probably elect someone to represent the ideals of a ski town. Mm-hmm. Everyone's there for roughly the same reason. Yeah, or a surf town, or say, yeah, any or, place or, where people get together for a shared interest. Exactly. I think to, to, tie, to tie these things together, I feel super lucky that I didn't grow up loving mainstream culture. Because I think if what was on NBC on Thursday nights was what I was into growing up, then the internet would have been really confusing to me. But because, you know, what I wanted was a skate video that you had to mail order and a seven inch that you had to mail order, the internet felt like a means to an end. To me, you know, the internet wasn't, I mean, the late 90s, I was totally confused by the gold rush. I was like, what is going on? Like, how do, I don't understand any of this stuff, you know, which is funny. As technologists, people would have thought like I had my finger on the pulse, but I didn't at all because I wasn't an opportunist in that way. I was just trying to solve, you know, problems. And I just loved music. And the same thing when I worked at LVMH, I was the chief digital officer, which is kind of meaningless, right? I'd never used the word digital before. It's like using the word oxygen all the time. And I think the same thing now as we're kind of entering, I mean, I, I really look at the internet as this revolution of information and blockchain and crypto as a revolution of value. And you just go, oh, well, it's just the same kind of progression. You know, like Clayton Christensen says, there haven't been new human problems in 100,000 years. You know, we just hire new technologies to solve old problems. So then you're just going, oh, well, what's a, what's a better way to do what people naturally want to do? Well, and if we're naturally tribal, you know, then then we're going to... You connect with the people of your tribe. Exactly. You find them. And, and it makes sense because you grew up in a school where you were the only punk rocker. I grew up in a school where I was the only punk rocker. If I had the internet at that point in time, I would have had friends all over the world. Exactly. But I didn't. I met people, you know, who liked the same music as me on the internet in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. A lot of those are lasting friendships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I wanted to research something, I would go to the library and research something and look at old microfilms of old newspaper articles, and now I go online. Exactly, new technology to solve old problems. Mm -hmm. Up until LVMH, you had many different jobs, you did a lot of different things, all of them, they seem all to be music related, yes? All music related. Okay, tell me about the jump from the world of music to the world of luxury. You know, if you think about it, 
that I described that first streaming music application in the early 90s. And then we did Winamp in kind of 98, 99. Rob and I did Media Code after that. We sold that to Yahoo. We built Yahoo Music Unlimited, which was a music subscription service. The first $5 a month, all-you-can-eat music subscription service. We had LaunchCast, we had other you know, media projects. At Topspin with Peter Gocher, who invented Pro Tools and DigiDesign. Which was a great idea. That's when you and I met. And um, I feel like we might have even met before that. But I that, met, but when we, yeah, I remember, because I remember you coming to the Topspin offices and it was when you were making the Metallica record. I remember that because I was like, is it Master of Puppets, please? Um, and uh, <laughs> I always say San Francisco's wax since Master of Puppets. And then we did Beats Music and Apple Music. And really, I couldn't have been more proud. <laughs> you know, I, I actually really loved working with Jimmy. I loved working with Trent. I loved working with Luke. I loved working with Zane. Loved. When it went from Beats to Apple, how was that different? You know, it was completely different. I mean, working with Jimmy is so exciting. I remember when I was at Topspin, you know, Jimmy really wanted me to come work at Beats. I was like, okay, buy my company. That's easy. But he didn't want to do that. He just wanted to harass me. I remember one time sitting outside of my, I was locked out of my house, waiting on my wife to come home and my phone rings. I pick it up, it's like a block number. I pick it up, Ian, what are you doing? Why are you still in the minor leagues? You're a major league player, Ian. What are you doing in the minors? I'm like, Jimmy, man, I'm working my ass off at my startup. Like, come on. I have to say, he was right. Like, the work that we did at Beats was a different level. Like, yeah. sitting But with, describe what Top Spin was, because I thought it was a really great, helpful idea and revolutionary at the time. You know, and, and I, really a big lesson for me because it was a commercial failure. Mm -hmm. But to me, the idealism and the spirituality of Topspin lives on. And mm -hmm. actually at LVMH, I leaned more on my Topspin experience than anything else I'd done in my mm -hmm. career because Topspin was a platform for direct-to-consumer marketing and retail of music. You, you, you know, aimed it at music, but it still would do the same thing for whatever you put in it. And you know, really like, I would say the, the people that did Topspin better than us, number one is Bandcamp, mm -hmm. because they did exactly what we were trying to do. But It's uh, what Bandcamp is today. What Bandcamp is today. And Bandcamp did a bunch of things that I never would have done that made them successful, but I would have bet against. Again, what are those things? Bandcamp.com. I thought it was artist.com. Mm -hmm. I never, and templates. I never would have had it. For me, an artist wants would to- Would always have all of the personality. Everything would start with the artist. Exactly. The name on it would be the artist's name and everything would stem from there. Exactly. It would be the artist and the fan. My mm -hmm. point of view was there are two people who matter in the music business. Yeah. People who make music and people who love music. Yeah. So Bandcamp would be invisible in your world. In my world, bank, there would be no bank. I would, I would have never, today, I actually find out about a lot of new records from Bandcamp because whether it's Sub Pop or 4AD or some label that you know no one's ever heard of, I get the notice from Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. I never would have thought we would get to that point. I thought Bandcamp would be like mp3.com, mm -hmm. a backwater for people who can't release somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So I had it wrong. Mm -hmm. And also templatized, right? Like, come on, where's the creative expression of the artist in this page? Mm -hmm. It can't just be a distribution network, right? I was wrong. And so we built tools. And I also thought that the commerce part of it was sort of commodity and that we really needed to be about communications and marketing. Mm -hmm. How do you reach people? And this is a theme that's really come back for me and, and actually LVMH 
helped me solidify it into sort of a grand theory of brand marketing and retail as two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. I wish I would have understood that as clearly in those days. Mm -hmm. I had an inkling of it, but I was trying to boil the ocean. I was like, artists want to leave labels and go direct to their consumers, so what's all the tools they need to do that? And that was just more than, more than we could accomplish. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like what Bandcamp could eventually turn into would be what Topspin was. Yes, here's the best way to, in my, my brain, Bandcamp is a part of it. At Topspin, we also, we wanted to be Bandcamp, Kickstarter, and Patreon, mm -hmm. right? And kind of, you know, Ticketmaster or direct-to-consumer Ticketmaster, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, that was just too much. Yeah. You know, those companies have all been smarter than us because they did something very specific instead of trying to do it all. And that's a great lesson for an entrepreneur, I think. But then at Beats, like it really was the big leagues with Jimmy, right? Because I mean, I was, I think we had started building, I had started building Beats Music. Let's say I joined the company in December. In March, Jimmy calls me and he's like, Ian, can you come in the office at 8.30 tomorrow? I've got a meeting I want you to join. Yeah, of course. I didn't know what it was. I come in the office, it's Tim Cook and Eddie Q. I'm like, Jimmy, what are we, what are we doing here? He's like, show them what we're building with Beats Music. I'm like, really? Like, we're just gonna give it to them and we also haven't really built it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, show them, show them. That was Jimmy, right? Masa from SoftBank wanted to buy the entire music business at once upon a time. Like when we were building Beats Music, and so sitting in the room with Jimmy and Masa, and basically Masa asking me, what's it going to cost me to buy the entire music business? I was like, yeah, I'm definitely playing in a different league at this point, right? So that's what it was like to work with Jimmy and Trent. And Trent is, a, I think, a true Renaissance man, mm -hmm. true creative genius, and just incredible to work with. Now then when we, when we sold to Apple, we were really like, we were on a short fuse. And I learned very quickly, Apple works on these two events that they have every year. And everyone in the company knows when their event is gonna be on stage and you bust your ass to get your, your thing there. We knew about the deal in March of the following year from the story I just told. The deal leaked in May, let's say. We closed the deal in June and we made it through kind of like the regulatory closures and everything and we were actually allowed to be inside of Apple August 1st. Mm -hmm. Eddie Q walks into the room with the Apple engineers and he says, okay, this is gonna be on, Apple Music is gonna be on stage in June, so get to work. And the Apple engineers, Jeff Robin, who had built, been, when I worked with Tony Fidel on the original iPod iTunes, was like, absolutely no way, Eddie. There's no way we can build this thing between now and June. And Eddie said, well, Tim's gonna announce it, so you better figure it out, and walked out of the room. So that's what it was like to be at Apple. And they throw the building at it. And it was really fun, actually. I, I, if you throw the building at something, can it be done? Yes, we announced Apple Music on, let's say June, I'm gonna make it up June 6th, mm -hmm. and we launched it on June 29th. Mm -hmm. So we were three weeks late, but yeah. we weren't a year late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are lots of things about it that I don't think were perfect, mm -hmm. but you know, Zane and I built a radio station that was uh, in three cities, you know, and on 24 hours a day. And has been ever since. Time, and has never turned off ever since, mm -hmm. you know. That part was extremely fun. And you have a lot of resource. I remember when Virgil first joined Vuitton, he said to me, he said, it's the first time in my life when my only constraint is time. I felt a little like that. You know, like we didn't talk about budgets. Mm -hmm. You know, if we needed something for the studio, we got it. Mm -hmm. You know, if Zane wanted something, we got it. Mm -hmm. You know, we got it done. So time was the constraint. 
nothing else. Does it ever work the other way where by time being the only constraint, it ends up, the palette becomes too big to focus? Is there any benefit to having the constraints? I mean, I think creativity loves constraints. I think time is a great one though. In something like this, also I'll speak for, as being a software developer, mm -hmm. you could always make it better in software and reducing scope, you know, there's a, they, they call it an MVP, a minimum viable product mm -hmm. in the world of software. And that's a great exercise. Can't remember where I read it. You know, I've read all the software books, kind of Joel on software, rework all these things. And there's, the trick is to build the simplest thing that could possibly work. And, you, and then you go from there. Mm -hmm. And, and I, then you I, iterate better over time. Exactly, I, I like that as a notion. What's the simplest thing that could possibly work? I would argue Justin Frankel, who is the only person to ever touch the Winamp 2 code, the only person to really write Nutella. He made another thing called Waste. He made Shoutcast. He made Reaper.fm. Like, he's probably the absolute king of this. Like He builds things that are very simple, very clever, very powerful. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, there's something in that, you know, for, for me. And then to come back to the music to luxury question, yes. again, so proud, couldn't have had a better career. As you know, digital music was a bloodbath. Very few people had success in digital music. There were a lot of us who were passionate about digital music, but the actual successful outcomes were few and far between. And I was lucky to have three of them, Nullsoft to AOL, MediaCode to Yahoo, Beats to Apple. And I really felt like if you're playing blackjack and you keep winning, stand up and walk away. <laughs> and that's what I felt. I was like, yeah. wow, okay, here I am at Apple. But also did it feel like you cracked the code, like you did it. You went to do a thing. You know what I remember, and you'll, you'll appreciate this given that you know him well. First of all, this is a great story. There was this amazing meeting at the Soho House in West Hollywood. Soho House was new, it was the middle of the 2000s. And it was a real come to Jesus meeting for the music industry. And kind of everybody was there. And I remember Geiger saying, streaming is the future and we all know it, but the game hasn't started yet. Mm -hmm. Until Apple's on the field, the game hasn't started yet. We're still in the locker room, right? So Moscone Center, announcement of Apple Music. I'm sitting 10th row, Tim Cook walks out on stage. The words behind him are, we love music. I love music. As Zappa said, music is the best, right? So just, I'm just, I'm in heaven. And I'm thinking, wow, I started building streaming music in the early 90s, and now it's on every iPhone. It's literally a part of the operating system. And I said, well, thinking of Geiger's words, and I was like, the game is starting right now. And I remember I called my wife that night, and she's like, how was it? And I was like, honestly, it's like my life's work. And I said, I think it's also the finish line for me. Yeah. I don't think there's anything for me to do here anymore. Yeah. You know, we're not gonna start the next SoundCloud or yeah. it's done. Yeah. But I had no idea what I might do. Right. You know, and you got golden handcuffs at Apple, like you're gonna sit there and do your job for three years and get your money. Mm -hmm. You know? And I get a call from a recruiter asking me if I'd heard of LVMH, and I said no. So I hadn't. Asked me if I'd heard of the Arno family, and I said no, because I hadn't. But in the Look at the brands, I'm like, oh, I listen to hip hop, I know the brands. Yeah, of um, course. As Mike D said, you know, Ian, everything you learned about know about fashion, you learned from Jay-Z songs. Yeah. Pretty much true. But what I saw with LVMH, I did the research, you know, starting with Wikipedia and then I went to all the brand websites. I read every article I could. And what I saw was, I was like, wait a minute, the fundamentals of the internet to me are that we're moving from mass to niche. 
I also believe that we're moving from a world where marketing is hyper-efficient to a world where quality is hyper-efficient. And that was written by a guy named Umer Haq back in 2004. He had a piece called The Blockbuster versus The Snowball. And I've used this example many times, but it's straight to the point. I love what you just said. So it's incredible. I stole it straight from Umer. Um, and what, you know, but what it meant to me was, you know, if you and I are making Pirates of the Caribbean 12 and we have two million extra dollars, do we spend that money making the movie better or putting Johnny Depp's face on the cups at Burger King? And the old media model, you marketing- the cups at Burger King. You know, but, and now it's making the movie better. Exactly. Yeah. Because and is, old, that, is that because of social media? Well, yes and no. It's because you have unlimited consumer choice. Yeah. And in the old world, you had limited consumer choice. Yeah. Right? So in the, old, in the world you and I grew up in, you weren't trying to make Citizen Kane. You were just trying to get people to go to theater A instead of theater B this mm-hmm. weekend. Mm-hmm. Right? There were only four movies on, mm-hmm. or when we were kids, two. And so you just had to get people to go to that one instead of that one. Mm-hmm. So that's why marketing was hyper-efficient. Now, you know, I mean, my 16-year-old doesn't even like movies. Mm-hmm. She thinks she'd rather do almost anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, she'd rather watch four episodes of The Gilmore Girls yeah. or Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what it is. It's just yeah. that she has a choice to do anything she wants. Yeah. And that, that is the difference. And Umer nailed that in 2004. And that... I've never un- been able to unsee it. Yeah. And so when I looked at LVMH, I went, okay, these guys are a collection of very valuable niches. So they have very few customers and very high revenues. And they're genuinely focused, obsessed with quality. And that's real. And people don't really believe that. I think people think like, oh, it's LVMH, it's a factory. It's so not true. One, one way that I always put it, and I kind of stole this from... Derek Edward Schloss, he, he wrote a piece that was about attention generation and value capture. These are the two sides of the coin. This is where the universal theory of brand comes in that I learned at LVMH. But if you think about it, the value capture of LVMH is extremely efficient. So I, was, I actually was having this conversation with Ben Adano earlier this year, where I, I said, everything is about attention generation and value capture. And that's why Drake, Louis Vuitton, Damien Hurst, and Beeple are all in the same business. And Louis Vuitton's value capture is much more efficient than Drake's, mm-hmm. right? Like Drake has to, I mean, A, Spotify, very inefficient way. Not that you don't make money, but- Inefficient. Inefficient number of customers relative to revenue, mm-hmm. right? Touring, sure, you can make money, but wow, you gotta- it's A lot of work. Yeah, a lot, a lot of, of work, miles, a lot of time. A, a, yeah, you drag your body around and the world. And it's limited. To- There's only so many days that you can do it. And you literally leave your family and like on the road for 200 yeah. days a year to pull it off and a lot of mouths to feed and you know all that, inefficient. There are not that many customers of Louis Vuitton. You know what I mean? If you, you put the number of Louis Vuitton customers over 8 billion people, that fraction is very small. Mm-hmm. And if you go to Damien Hurst and then Beeple, then the fraction gets even smaller, right? Beeple is incredibly efficient efficient at value capture when you think about number of customers Mm -hmm. over revenue. Mm -hmm. The other piece of it, I remember when LVMH was uh, launching the Fenty beauty brand, which is Rihanna's beauty brand. Mm -hmm. And this is where people, I think, would be surprised at the the care they put into the product itself. I was in the room and they, the team wanted to show Ben Adano um, the marketing for Fenty. And he was, he was just like, it's okay, I trust you guys. No, no, it's gonna be, it's gonna be fine. He only wanted to talk about the product. Yeah. 
Where is it made? See it, feel it. He wanted to make sure the very best formulators in the world were making that product. And I'll never forget, he said, guys, we're gonna do fine in year one. It's Rihanna. I'm sure the marketing is great. The question is, do we have a business in year 15? Mm-hmm. We only have a business in year 15. If it's quality. If it's quality. Yeah. And that is where I think I had, had it right. Massive niche. Mm-hmm. LVMH understands that to grow the business, they don't just make Louis Vuitton, Nike. Mm-hmm. You know, they make Loewe go from A to 10A. Mm-hmm. They, may, they buy Remova and they you know, grow it from 400 million to a billion. They, you know, so you go wide, not deep necessarily, mm-hmm. not tall. Mm-hmm. And they are obsessed with quality. Mm-hmm. You know, like I watched them bring every part they could you know, into France instead of sourcing things from China, you know, those, those sorts of things. So I, I think that that is just fundamental physics and that works on the internet. You have a, we're living in a world that goes from mass to niche. We're going from the world that you and I grew up in where marketing is hyper-efficient to the world of the future where quality is hyper-efficient. And that doesn't mean like, okay, everyone's gonna start listening to classical music. It just means that whatever my daughter likes is what she gets to listen to. Mm-hmm. She's, she doesn't have to compromise Tell me what did you specifically do at LVMH? And did anyone do that before you were there? Um, so they had somebody who was focused on digital. They call it digital. Right. Calling it digital was a way to just take all of this stuff that was new and put it in the corner where they didn't have to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so what I had to do was get it out of the corner, mm-hmm. go through it. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, all this stuff isn't the same actually. Like social media and e-commerce and and by the way, can we talk about China for a minute? Because it's also completely different. So I had to parse it all apart mm-hmm. and go, okay, well, this is actually about attention generation. Mm-hmm. This is about value capture. And this is where things go. And does it make sense for LVMH to do that from a corporate place instead of based on each house? Yeah, sometimes yes, sometimes no, because technology loves scale. So the things that we did, there are really three main things. One is e-commerce. The second is putting better tools in the hands of the sales associates so that when you get the great service that you get from LVMH, they have good tools to do it from. And then there's data. You know, LVMH should know more about the luxury customer than anyone on the planet. And do we? No, we don't. Okay, how do we? Let's figure that out. And if you look now at LVMH, most of them are on the same e-commerce platform. So there's a benefit of that. Um, Most of them are using the same clienteling software and most of them are using the same data platform. And that does provide a lot of scale, but the implementation of that needs to be brand by brand. Mm-hmm. You know, so the brand is never compromising. Mm-hmm. You know, in the records, you know, you've got distribution and then you've got, you know, making records. Making records is very vertical, mm-hmm. but distribution is very horizontal, mm-hmm. right? So their technology can solve a lot of the horizontal problems, but then you have to make sure that you never compromise the creativity that's in kind of the, the, the vertical slot there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really fundamentally what we did. And I really see the benefit of it because now I'm on the board at Dr. Martin's and we are a standalone company. When was it founded, do you know? Dr. Martin's? Yeah. 50s. 1950s. Yeah, in, I, don't, I couldn't tell you the, the exact year, but yeah, 50s. I, I only know it as Doc Martin's. I never heard it called Dr. Martin's. Yeah, Is it, it actually called Dr. Martin's? It's actually called Dr. Martin's. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's an interesting story because there's, there was a boot company and then there was a soul that was brought, I think, from Germany, Dr. Martin, who brought that sort of bouncing soul, mm-hmm. the, the, the soul, and it became sort of the iconic brand. 
Great example of a brand too that really had like just incredible organic marketing and was very scene driven or kind of culture driven. Absolutely. You know, you had everyone from Pete Townsend to skinheads wearing Dr. Martens, right? You know what I mean? And it was the punk rock boot of choice. Exactly. I mean, that's I saw them at the alley in Chicago first, right? It's the only place I knew you could get them and same place you could buy misfits in a Nazi punks fuck off t-shirt if you mm -hmm. wanted, right? Um, they also sold Dr. Martens. But it's a standalone brand and we, you know, the tech side of what we need to do is to be a modern brand is quite expensive. Mm -hmm. And so at LVMH, we can really mutualize that across and amortize the cost mm -hmm. across a Everybody. lot of brands, mm -hmm. which is interesting because, I mean, LVMH is not really about amortizing cost the same way that a Procter & Gamble or a L'Oreal. L'Oreal and Procter & Gamble are very much about amortizing costs and being kind of command and control. LVMH is much more like, if you're a brand, do what you need to do. I don't even care if it costs more. I need you to be you. But technology, I found, was a place where people really wanted help. So based on what you're saying with Doc Martin, it would be interesting to create that service, not just for Doc Martin, but for all of the Doc Martins of the world. Exactly. And I think that's what Farfetch has really tried to do. Mm. So if you if you look at Farfetch and you, and you talk to Jose... I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think very much the current direction of the company, which is being this sort of infrastructure layer, layer for the, the fashion industry. Mm. You know, and I think the challenge is it's also very mixed up in a little bit of the top spin conversation, right? Because because Farfetch is the brand. Exactly. Yeah. Where do you so want the like, customer to go? It, is it Bandcamp or is it Topspin? Exactly. Is the customer going to Bandcamp.com, aka Farfetch.com, or is the customer, you know, going to Drake or Ovio, which is more the topspin model and more the Louis Vuitton model. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when, when I started, China is just incredibly interesting. It's like a different internet and a very different e-commerce culture. People told me, if you're not on Tmall, then you don't exist. And we proved that wrong. I mean, we really built, you know, Louis Vuitton's own channel and Dior's own channels into places where people buy. But that's because you know, things that are craft and desirable. You know, I mean, look, if Kanye with the next Yeezy drop was like, okay, you can get them, but you have to drive to a warehouse in New Jersey to get them, people would drive to the warehouse in New Jersey it's to so get them. It's so funny you say that. I had a conversation with him years ago where he was unhappy with Adidas because they promised to open all these stores, Yeezy stores for him, and then they weren't going through with it. And I said, wouldn't it be interesting to have one big factory that's like Yeezy Mecca. And if you want to see where Yeezys are made or if you want to buy the new drop, you have to go to this one place somewhere in the world and that's the only place to get it. That's kind of better. It's Legoland, right? I mean, it's, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's all supply and demand. Like that's what LVMH really understands better than most is how to make supply and demand happen. I think Nike does as well, right? Because they've got that full spectrum between the shoe you buy at Foot Locker and then the one that's really hard to get, yeah. right? But I also think that, that that's also about aspiration. It's about signaling. And I don't think that the fact that it's a physical shoe is the reason that it has value, which brings you into that sort of phys physical digital world, which is also about supply and demand. You mentioned that there are short runs of collectible things made by LVMH that are all basically pre-sold forever. Yeah. 
Tell me about that. I don't know anything about it. I think one of the things that's very underappreciated about Louis Vuitton is that they really do novelty at scale. If you walk into a Louis Vuitton store, first of all, that, that store has relatively little inventory relative to another business, relative to the Nike store, I would say. In other words, if there was nothing new coming into the store next week, within a month, they would run out of product. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, you pick up that shoe, there's probably only a few hundred of those shoes that have ever been made. And then what they're doing is they're introducing new products, you know, very frequently. And that's really difficult, you know, from a product development standpoint, from a supply chain standpoint. And they're doing it at a very high quality and in a very high craft. Now, you've also got a full spectrum where, you know, you've got a, a bag that costs $700. And then you also have a bag that costs $15,000 that's made of crocodile and et cetera, right? So, and they do that, that spectrum incredibly well, which is no different from... Bandcamp. So is everything collectible? I, you know, I, I feel like this is where it crosses over into your book a bit, right? All of culture is, this, is, is in agreement. I mean, Americans have a very hard time understanding luxury. I was just having this conversation with Vanessa Friedman, who's saying that like her editors are sort of perplexed at how Ben Arano can be one of the richest people in the world because they just don't understand what he sells. The realization for me was that a Louis Vuitton handbag and a Slayer t-shirt serve the same function in society. Mm-hmm. They say, I'm a part of this tribe, mm-hmm. I'm not a part of that tribe. Mm-hmm. So you could say that the richest person in the world on some days, Ben Adano, doesn't really sell things that are either useful or necessary. Mm-hmm. What LVMH sells on some level is culture, right? No one spends $3,000 on a Dior handbag because of its incredible utility. They spend that money on the bag because Dior means something in culture. And when you use that bag, you feel it, you feel a part of it, and it expresses to the rest of the world that you are a part of that culture. You know, it used to be that if, if I saw a kid at the mall wearing a Thrasher t-shirt, you would go up and talk to him. It's not quite the case anymore, but it still exists. If I saw someone wearing a chromy squiggle, mm-hmm. I would go up and talk to them because I know they're a part of a very specific culture that I'm also a part of and I wanna, and I wanna talk to them. So is everything collectible? No, not everything, I suppose. But, but I mean, even if you go to you know, therealreal.com or vestiarecollective.com, you, know, you see I don't know those. What are they're those? resale for, for luxury. Huh. So that's where you'd go to buy a used uh, Chanel or Vuitton handbag. So I guess in that way, they're, they are collectible. Mm-hmm. Someone will buy it. It has a resale value. And, and so, yeah, I guess in that way, you're, you're pretty much always selling something um, that has value today and should have value tomorrow. You know, and, and in that way, LVMH takes a 100-year time horizon on their brands. Um, I had the, the former CEO of Louis Vuitton tell me, a, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think there's a lot of truth to it as well, that everyone in the company has taken an oath against short-term revenue. Mm-hmm. I also think that it plays an interesting way into creativity and the way that they support creativity because LVMH's investment thesis is we back creativity with operational efficiency and they take a very long-term belief on creativity and one of the things I really like about it is they will bet longer on an artist than I saw in the music business. At the music business, you get kind of one at bat and then on to the next if you don't hit a home run whereas they will nurture talent over years and years and years because the business model supports it, right? When I left the music business, the recorded music business was a $15 billion business. 
And I went to LVMH, which was a $30 billion plus business and became a 50 plus billion dollar business during the time I was there. So you actually have enough capital to support creative people. Mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed that. When did your love affair with digital art begin? So I started at Ledger. I was actually, um, you know, I came to Ledger really because I believed in the cryptocurrency narrative, specifically Bitcoin and Ethereum, because, you know, I really felt like we had gotten to a place where Bitcoin had become unstoppable. It was too big to, to stop. What, what is Ledger? Ledger is a company that makes hardware that is secure for securing and working with digital assets. So our belief is that there will be more, we will we, we lead increasingly digital lives and we will have digital value in these digital lives. And that will be everything from, you know, digital cash to digital art and our identity itself. You know, the way that you move borders, you know, your passport will be digital and to move a border, you will prove that you are the owner of the wallet that contains that passport. So if this is the world that we're moving to, then you absolutely must have security and self-custody. Which the phone is not a secure device. Correct. So this reminds me of 2002 when I knew the internet was a big part of the lives of future humans. I had a cell phone. I had a computer where I did the internet. My cell phone was terrible at the internet, effectively didn't do it. And I had an iPod. And over time, all of those things converged. Um, But in 2002, converging them was a pipe dream. And, And there were really big barriers to it as well. Like, this is what people forget is, you know, if you knew the mobile companies, you knew that the mobile companies didn't like the internet, right? That was like a loss of control mm-hmm. and a loss of lock-in and all these things that, that they held really, really dear. So I think that you have a lot of those similar dynamics now. So what happened to me during the pandemic, A, Tony Fidel and I were pod families. So we would sit around and not only talk about music because we're both music fanatics, but also technology and the future of humanity. And what does what does this pandemic mean for humanity? Well, it means that we're all living increasingly online lives. And it also means that governments are injecting money into the, into the monetary systems. Trillion in stimulus in Europe, two trillion in stimulus in the US. So to, for us, like the case for not only Bitcoin, but also blockchains like Ethereum, Ethereum being a world computer where you can write and run you know, programs, and also tokenize things like identity, like titles and deeds and et cetera, you know, that use case just felt like it was here. Like if you knew it was always coming, the question was just like, okay, well, how far away is it? And the pandemic felt like it accelerated a lot of things. It accelerated our e-commerce business at LVMH, but it also accelerated, I think, some of these other things, you know, OpenSea, where you trade digital objects and digital art is kind of like having a place to show off your digital art. And it kind of accelerated, you know, so the OpenC value. is like an online gallery where you can see everything that's there and everything is for sale, whether it's for sale or not. It's more like an eBay for everything on chain, right? So it's a, it's a place where everything on chain can be seen and everything on chain can be sold, bought, offered, Etc. So you could almost think of it as like imagine if your you know your record collection, you know, was suddenly just visible, and everyone else's record collection was visible, and I could look at yours, and you could look at mine, and I could say, 
hey, I'll give you $10,000 for that cough cool seven inch without you having to put it on Discogs. It just exists on chain. Therefore, you know, I, I can make an offer on it. And things trade hands. You can look into total collection. I, so it's, know, a, it's a museum, essentially. Yet, again, when I say whether it's for sale or not, like you, you can put your things in the museum like it's a gallery. I would actually say it's more like a swap meet than a museum. You know, you can create a museum using another tool, which is where you curate. So if I have, you know, a thousand pieces of digital art, I can curate 200 of them and put them into a gallery. I mean, just like a gallery does, by the way, right? If you mm -hmm. go to the Broad, one of the coolest parts about the Broad is you can actually look in and see all the art that isn't on the walls. Mm -hmm. You see where it's stored in those long racks. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of, most of the world's art is not on display. Mm -hmm. It's like being able to see all of it mm -hmm. and have it change hands. Yeah, I think the digital value is what's confused a lot of people about, about blockchains. There's actually a utility here. There is value in Bitcoin because we all agree that there is, and it's a very specific story and a very specific type of asset, and we've all kind of agreed that it has value, and more and more people will agree that it has value over time, which is why it will become more valuable. Um, but I would argue that the technology itself is actually more like just digital stuff than digital value. I have a bad analogy. I think it's a good analogy, but it brings a bad connotation to people, so I need to come up with something else. But I say it's almost more like plastic. You know, in the, when my mom was born, there wasn't a lot of plastic in the world, but there was a plastic revolution during my mom's life. And now turn your head any direction on the planet and you see plastic. You know, we could talk about whether plastic's good or bad, but the reality is like, again, you turn your head any direction and, and you see a lot of plastic. And most of it doesn't have value, but there are certainly ways that it can. You know, if I put it together into this recording device, well, it's got some value and you can and you can sell it to someone. It has a it has a value. It's the same thing with digital stuff. We just have this construct, this tool, this ability to create permissionless digital ownership and scarcity. And, and then the that tool will be used for many things. The difference between the ownership and being able to see it is that if you own it, you can sell it. But if you don't own it, you can still see it. So let's say you own a piece of art. I can look at the art as often as you do. Yes? Correct, absolutely. The only difference between you our- You could even like right click save as, and then now you've got it and yeah. you can put it on your wall even. Yeah, so the only difference is I can't sell it, you can. Correct, you can get a poster of you know the Mona Lisa and hang it on your wall, but you don't own the Mona Lisa. Yeah. That's a great example because it's a it's the same idea. Just because the Mona Lisa's physical doesn't really mean anything. Correct. That's what I love about this. And I would really encourage people, regardless of what you think, I actually really deeply understand why people dislike crypto, especially after what we've been through in the past year. And it's the same reason that, frankly, I disliked San Francisco in the year 2000, right? Because I'd lived through all these like bad parties with bad electronic music with really lame people in San Francisco who were there to get rich. So I totally understand. It's exactly the same vibe to me. 
Also though, you know, digital music in 2001, 2002, 2003 was incredibly fun because we were back to this core group of people who care about music and care about technology and we were building something. That's the world I live in, in crypto. But I also understand how when we talk about crypto, that's not what people think of. They think of Sam Bankman-Fried, they think of FTX. It's like, you know, it's like if you think of the internet, you think of pets.com and digital entertainment network and, you know, white tigers and pedophilia, right? Which all were a part of, <laughs> you remember this? No. Someone should make the digital entertainment network documentary, by the way, but yes. And by the way, John Silva and Gary Gersh were like accidentally wrapped up in that for a hot minute because, you know, the, the light was bright, right? And, you know, the money seemed endless. And uh, that feels like a platform, which is why people get sucked into it. But again, come back to the fundamentals. There's no question that we live increasingly online lives. There's a new invention, which is digital value. There's so much that can and will be done with that just from the basics. But in the same way that paper money has no value other than we agree, if it says 100 on the bill, you can get this much stuff for this 100. Same is true with bits. Exactly. And if we are moving from a world, you know, if we are, as Balaji says, moving from God to state to network, of course the network will have its own money and, and, and value. It, and already, if you're using credit cards, you're already using bits. It's already, it's no different. Exactly. You're and, already in the digital realm. Well, and the difference is, I mean, so think about what's wrong with that system, right? I mean, the credit card story is incredible, by the way, worth reading about. Hawk, a mid-level banker in the 70s, created a, a not-for-profit out of a consortium of banks that made for more fluidity, you know, in the retail market. And it caused a revolution. And it also allowed people to have credit, which is, you know, think about it. In the US, we're completely over indebted. And in El Salvador, as an example, they basically have no debt, right? They have no money. They spend their money as soon as they get it, because there's no even they don't even have a bank to put it in, let alone a line of credit, right? You know, and, and so what is the credit system at this point? It's a three percent tax on retailers, right? In the US, roughly. And who gets the benefit of that? Uh, well, I'm one of the beneficiaries because I have a credit card that gives me points and my wife and I stay in hotels for free because some people pay a 17% APR, right? And that's a very broken system that can be improved. So right now, when I go to my local vegetable store in Paris, which by the way, before the pandemic would not take a credit card from me unless I spent $20, now they only want a credit card and they're paying about a one and a half percent tax on that and we're using a credit system, but I don't need credit. I'm basically paying them digital cash using a credit system. When digital cash with instantaneous international settlement already exists technologically. Of course that goes away, of course it does. Like it's so obvious to me, just like I said in terms of, of identity. So let me give another answer to the question, what is Ledger? Ledger is a digital safe. It's a portable digital safe that you can have with, with you in your pocket. Exactly. And, and it can attach to your phone magnetically? Well, think of it even in a different attachment way. It can, it's a connected safe, right? So look at what I went through last night. I was telling you that I was up till 1130 trying to buy a, a, a plane ticket, right? And I had to talk to someone in the middle of someone in the middle to try to make a payment, whereas actually transferring value is as trivial as transferring bits using Nutella. Technically, it's as trivial and totally decentralized. So it's a connected safe. So let's like get out of the realm of value for a second. Just explain decentralized. 
So I'm, I'm going to say this um, just because it's true. I had this debate with the RZA two days ago, <laughs> um, and he was pushing back on the notion of decentralization. And I said, I think I can convince you of this in 30 seconds. And I actually don't think I was um, successful. And he had very good counter arguments, but I think in the end, maybe we got there. But I would argue that without decentralization, you don't have security. Security is not possible. And the way that you um, kind of get your head around that is to just go, well, if not decentralized, and I'll come back to maybe more specific meaning of that, but just tell me whose database would you like all of humanity's information to live in? You want it to be in Google's, Apple's, US government, China government? What is a database? A database is I put some value there and I trust that it's going to be there when I come back. So that could be, I gave Rick $10. Okay, so whose ledger does that go on, right? Does it go on the ledger of the bank, you know, the ledger of the US government, or a decentralized ledger that actually no one owns and you know, I can always you know, prove that this happened. And this is where the fundamental shift comes in. And so if the beginning of the internet was log in with your username and password, log into what? Log into a centralized database where the username and passwords are, so, are stored. And when you type in your username and then you type in your password, it asks in a centralized database if those two things match. Now, version two of the internet was Log in with Google, log in with Facebook, log in with iCloud. I mentioned that I you know, moved from an iPhone to a, an Android phone recently, and you really feel how someone owns your ass at that moment. Like everything, my whole life is in iCloud. My photos, my documents, all my logins. Oh my God, everywhere I go, I'm bumping into the like, you're not in Apple world anymore. What are you doing? You know, thing. Well, where we're going is I have a wallet and I am the owner of that wallet, and that therefore gives me access. Explain why you shifted from Apple to Android. You know, I, I have kind of a long lineage with this where at Beats, I wanted to be the Android user because we needed a good Android client and just I just wanted to test it, you know, eat the dog food, as they say. So everyone else was an Apple user. Everyone else in the company was an Apple user. And we needed to have a good Android client. And I so was like, you, I'll, I'll do it. You'll do you know, it. And, and you'll, you'll take the bullet. I'll take the bullet. And, and also, I, you know, I'm just that kind of a nerd that's like, I want to know. I want to know if it sucks. When I got to Apple, of course, I got an iPhone. When I went to LVMH, I kept my iPhone. And maybe a year and a half in, Google said, hey, we want to give you a Pixel phone and get you back on Android. I said, great. Let's try it. I, these phones look sexy. I'll try one. Mm -hmm. I used it for about a month. And then I gave up it was a productivity killer for me. You know, we used Outlook at LVMH. I couldn't just get simple things to work, like click on a phone number and it dials the number. You know, there was just basic stuff that I felt like I was, I was missing. Um, and I wrote a long note to my friends at Google. It was like, here's my problems, why I need to move back to iOS. I forwarded that note to someone at Apple. I won't, it's, it's in a Wall Street Journal article, so you can find the story it got forwarded to Tim Cook as sort of a, see, this is why we need not to open iMessage and FaceTime, because that was one of the things I mentioned. And then it got discovered. And I think like the Epic Games trial, and then it got kind of, I felt really terrible because I was just trying to share my experience as a user. Yeah. I didn't mean to cause trouble for anyone. No. But um, in a way, 
it's helpful information to be out there. Ultimately, your goal is we're trying to make good stuff. Yeah, let me tell you, I'm just a user. Yeah. Let me tell you my experience. Yeah. Put it in the mix with all the other comments. Of course. And tell me what happens. I went back to, to iOS for a very long time. And then recently, uh, we did a project with, at Ledger with Samsung. Samsung released a new and very sexy phone, again, like the geek sort of shiny object syndrome, right? And I have to say, so my, my very short review is, moving from iCloud to all things Google is a pain in the ass. Not having FaceTime and iMessage is a real bummer, especially because I have a daughter who doesn't know anyone who doesn't use iMessage, <laughs> which is interesting in itself. And third, not having AirDrop with my wife is a genuine hassle. Apart from that, absolutely everything about this phone is superior. Superior battery life, superior processor, superior screen, more configurability. You know, I can actually buy things from the Audible store as opposed to needing to go to Amazon and buy something and then go back to Audible to listen to it because of Apple's stupid App Store rules where they control everything and if you sell something digital, they get 30% or whatever the percentage is today. You know, it's like it really feels... Like, you know, apart from those things I mentioned, everything is actually better about the phone, which is interesting to think about where is the lock-in? You know, what is it? Is it brand? Is it iMessage and FaceTime, which really don't get talked about all that much, but they are a big, a big barrier to moving. You know, the, something that really, first of all, I don't know when the right time to say this is, and I've said it to you without recording, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up and say, this is a gigantic honor for me to talk to you about any of this stuff always has been, to be able to just sit and listen to music with you is like an absolute dream come true because we're just music fans and I don't think we'd ever run out of fodder. And to me, you've done so many things that are genuinely important in culture. Obviously for me, the Beastie Boys, but, but also, I mean, I just think going from Beastie Boys to Cool J to Slayer is, it's, it's the same feeling I had with the Beastie Boys, which is like, okay, that these are kindred spirits in terms of what we love about culture and what soul means to us, right? What's the, what is the through line? To me, it's like self-expression and soul and rebellion and all, all of these things. All that said, I, I'm wondering if your book is not maybe the most important thing that you've done because the way that you like wrap up this like big canvas of creativity is so identifiable to so many people. Slayer's not that identifiable to that many people. Even like, you know, a Tom Petty record is gonna to appeal to this many people, right? But what, when you talk about creativity, it's hard to imagine somebody who doesn't identify with those words in, in some way. And you mentioned digital art. So with that as the backdrop, to me, there's something you talk about in the book that is so wrapped up in this because you, there's many times when you, you really dance around what is art and you actually encourage people to get out of their comfort of what they think art is and get into something else. A realization I had recently is that these words, music, fashion, art, they're actually distribution terms. They're not artistic terms. Artists always defy those boundaries, right? They're, you know, like Kanye, we are talking about. I don't wanna be in the box. Music is a box. I gotta get out of the box. Great artists always transcend those boundaries. It's always the business that wants that boundary between music and fashion. 
if it comes on a little plastic disc with 72 minutes of music, well, then it's music. If it hangs on a coat hanger, then it's fashion. And if it hangs on a wall in a gallery, then it's art, right? And what I like about this digital realm is those things really fall apart. And I've been approached over the last couple of years by people who are doing, you know, digital music on the blockchain or digital fashion on the blockchain or digital art on the blockchain. And I find myself going, why are you making the distinction? Like, what is it really? Like, what are you talking about? Like, isn't it just a creative person and a canvas? And that's why I like projects like MetaLabel where they're solving kind of a, a bigger problem that's not specific. It's like, well, how do we package together a lot of different kinds of things like text and images and videos and music and everything and we put it in one container? How do we acknowledge that creativity is almost always a collaboration and often when people collaborate, like, you know, if me and my friend make a seven inch, it's probably not worth forming an LLC and <laughs> registering the pub. You know, like, can't we just go, hey, we're 50-50 and after we recoup, that's how we split the money and it's all automatic in this kind of and new- And you can do that on MetaLabel. And you do, that's exactly what MetaLabel does. So I, li I like to kind of zoom out and go, you know, not what is it, but what might it be? Mm -hmm. I've loved collecting digital art over the past two years. I have probably wasted a lot of money doing it. In my view, that was always okay because I was gonna did learn. Did you do it as an investment or did you do it to make you happy? I did it to make myself happy and to learn. Because yeah. I, I think too often people, they read about something in the New York Times and then they form an opinion, which honestly, I think that's idiotic. You and I have had the experience where you know, a major publication that you trusted writes about something that you know something about. <laughs> and then you go, how could I ever read this again? Yeah. How, how, how could I and ever? We've had that experience with every publication and every channel and every qualified source. Only way to learn is to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I would always say to the execs at LVMH, you know, like they want to come talk to me about some technology. And I would just say, have you tried it? No, I read about it. Well, go try it and come back when, tell me when you've tried it. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, it's hard to talk about AI art unless you've made some. And then you can come back and go, oh, actually, I like this. I don't like that. Okay, that's, that's all. Tell me about generative art. So generative art is code as art. So you have people who make, they, they make code. That code creates art in some way, creates an image generally, but could be video, could be, could be just the code itself. But you know, that's the thing, it's a creative canvas, could be anything. And then it's either, you know, it creates imagery and the artist selects the images that they think are aesthetically pleasing, or maybe it just gets created and you roll the dice and hopefully it's aesthetically pleasing. Or in the case of what Tyler Hobbs and Dandelion Wist did with QQL, um, they did something really exciting where they made an, in, they made a, an algorithm, they allowed the consumers to run the algorithm and then the consumer decides when it's art and when to kind of hit snapshot. So it's um, almost like a process. Correct. They create a process and then whatever comes out of that process is a collaboration with the viewer who gets to say, this is where I want it. This is my version of it. And I think looking at Tyler's description of it is a great way to explore it a bit because then what you realize is that it could be anything. You know, it really is 
just new tools in the toolbox. There are 100 million songs on Spotify. You and I, it's actually inaccurate to say we love music. It would be more accurate to say we dislike most music, <laughs> right? But we think, I love music. That's where you and I come from because music brings us so much joy. Uh -huh. Reality is probably a million out of those 100 million that we actually really like, uh -huh. right? Similarly, you know, most of the output will be garbage. But another thing you say in your book is that art is an agreement. And that's what happens is there's a creative person. The creative person has developed a craft. Maybe they've even developed a community. And then there are people who want to be a part of that. And they exchange value. And, and again, in a world that's moving from mass to niche and from, from marketing to quality, I think that that just fits. And I know it because I felt it. For me, the communities of art blocks, bright moments, crypto punks, they actually mean something to me. And I know that they, they don't exist in a physical world, you know, but that's okay. I, I mean, I think the fact that, you know, Dior handbags are physical is actually irrelevant. If you say, why did you spend $5,000 for that? And I say, well, you know, I really appreciate the craft. I find it like aesthetically really beautiful. I love the brand. The brand has been around for a long time and they're kind of like proven that they're, they're gonna keep going. And I want to be a part of that very small community that appreciates that. I could be talking about Richard Meal, the watch brand, right? I could be talking about a luxury watch uh -huh. or I could be talking about CryptoPunks, you know, or art blocks and, and that community. They are actually, nobody buys a luxury wristwatch to tell the time. They buy it for those reasons I just said. I have a lot of pride in being a collector in the art blocks community. I say that just because I'm almost, I'm personally astonished by it. You're like, if you'd have told me two years ago what that feels like, I couldn't have felt it until I felt it. Yeah, it's um, also interesting, the example you gave earlier of Grand Royal and how in the early days it was just like, this is what we want to do. And then eventually a business grew up around it and then it became, this is what we have to do. This art is still at that stage of, if anyone's doing it, it's because they really want to do this. And they're, who knows if there's upside or what it means going forward, people are doing this out of love and curiosity. Yeah, and I think that's actually why, you know, today is a terrible market for NFTs. If you bought, you know, NFT collectibles at a high price in the fall of 2021, you are absolutely underwater today. So there are a lot of, it makes sense that people would call it a scam. People would be dejected. People felt like it was a gold rush and they got screwed. That's why I much more focused personally on the stories of people like Matt Cain, who was a, an oil painter, who found that digital was a better creative expression of what he had in his head than what he could achieve with, with oil paints. You know, someone like Tyler Hobbs or, you know, someone like um, MP Cause, uh, Mike Kozlowski, who he's, you know, I've spent time with him. There's just no question this guy is an artist. He is a creator. Um, whether there was money in it or not, mm -hmm. this is what he would be doing with his yeah. with his time. And when we what we saw in the first dot com crash, there were a lot of people involved early. It got really big. 
it crashed, and now it basically runs the world. <laughs> so, so there's a great book that has the very uh, catchy title of Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital. I can't believe everyone hasn't read this book um, by a woman named um, Carlotta Perez. And the, the premise of the book, she goes through, it was actually written just after the dot-com crash. I think it's a 2002 book. And she goes through all of these technical revolutions throughout history, you know, from um, railway to the silicon chip, to the internet. And, you know, she says that in every single technological revolution, there is promise and there's a gold rush and there's a bubble and the bubble bursts. And then you have 30 years of sustained growth. And it's, it's kind of clockwork. And I think also, you know, people call, they talk about Web3. I'm not a fan of that term because it makes it sound incremental to Web2, which it isn't. It's a separate revolution. You know, the, the internet was a revolution of information. Information, when I was a kid, information was scarce to me. I only had what was on the TV, what was on the radio, and what I could get on the magazine rack. Our kids do not know that world, right? I, I grew up in a world where there was nothing to watch on Sundays except golf. And it, and it was like, what, you wanted to pull your hair out. Like, can you imagine a kid today, like can't even get his head around that. So the internet fundamentally burst that open. And that's toothpaste that won't go back in the tube. Then what we have now is a revolution of value. It's a tough word because again, this is where the gold rush comes in. You know, and this is why actually kind of crypto gold rush is maybe worse for humanity than dot-com gold rush. Dot-com gold rush took a lot of money from investors. <laughs> crypto gold rush took a lot of money from average people because the protections weren't in place to protect them. So that's why I say I understand there's a reason to hate this. And it's not just San Francisco dot-com bro culture that you know I disliked in 1999. It is people lost their life savings to Ponzi schemes, right? So that is definitely a reason to to hate, it doesn't change the fundamentals. The fundamentals are we live digital lives, we have a new tool in our toolbox, and that is decentralized, permissionless, digital value and digital code. That is a tool that we will use as humanity. Things like digital cash, things like digital identity, things like you know industrial applications where an industry wants to share data without you know, creating privacy concerns for their customers. These are the kinds of things that, that will be done using this technology. You know, you've, you've been through buying land in various parts of the world and trying to figure out who owns that parcel of land. How do you prove that that person owns it and not someone else? Like, you know, th there is new technology to solve these, these problems. There's something very real under this, and actually like the digital art I collect, they're kind of just like digital luxury goods in a way, or maybe digital Slayer t-shirts. It's just a way for me to say, hey, in, this, in my online life, I'm one of these people, mm -hmm. right? You know, if you look at my gallery, gallery.so slash ENCR, my friends would look at it and go, eh, this looks like Ian. I, I, I see a bunch of art, I see, you know, Old Dirty Bastard and Adam Yauch and Serge Gainsbourg and David Bowie and, you know what I mean? It, it, it looks like me. And that, I think, is real, but very, like, relatively small, right? I have a funny, a funny um, 
anecdote about luxury goods. I tend not to buy any luxury goods of any kind. And was walking in um, in a little town somewhere, and I passed a Hermes store. And there was something in the window that Hermes made that I felt like, I need this. And it was a Hermes rock. It was a rock that was painted orange, Hermes orange, and it said Hermes on it on the bottom. And it had no use. It was It had as much use as any other rock, except this was a Hermes rock. And that was like, this is the one luxury good that I feel good about, like a rock, a branded rock. That and feels right to me. Why did it? I don't know. I don't know. It was just like the, um, it somehow felt the most honest, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, look, so many of the things that we've bought in our lives, value is relative. You know, when we say quality is hyper-efficient, that really means tier one to me. You know, what is it that I value? Mm-hmm. And a lot of what we do is we, and we say out loud what it is we value. Even if you're anti-fashion, then that's fashion. You Absolutely. Can, you, you cannot escape it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm anti-fashion and I care very much about the t-shirt I'm wearing. Exactly. Yeah, Jonathan Anderson had a great quote about this where he was like, look, even if you're wearing a white t-shirt, whether that white t-shirt came from The Gap or Uniqlo, says something about you. Absolutely. You can't escape it. Absolutely. Uh, tell me about censorship online. I mean, this is a tough one, right? Because it, again, I, I think you get, to me, you gotta zoom all the way out and say, who controls what? And if we're going from kind of state to network, it does come back to Nutella in some way, right? How do you control it? Where do you control it? So I think, you know, the, the internet kind of fundamentally makes censorship impossible, right? Because I can set up a server, that server can be on the internet. Now, China has really proven us all wrong on that, you know, where they have actually a very controlled internet, but it's still, it's almost a system that you opt into or opt out of. You know, you can say, I play the game and I'm going to, you know, be fed what I'm fed, but you, if you want to, there's a way around it. You can leave the country, you can use a VPN, you can, you know, so, in some ways, I would I would argue it's it's just sort of you know fundamentally impossible. At the same time, the, and then maybe the surprising part for someone who's kind of an original free software, you know, free not in free beer, but free meaning freedom, uh, you know, kind of kind of person. The the surprise and disappointment is that you know a few platforms do control everything. They can effectively you know control what people broadly consume through algorithms, through who's platformed, deplatformed, et cetera. So it's, I think it's kind of interesting in that you, you end up with this world where censorship is fundamentally impossible because anything can be put online and, and found, you know, but also uh, you can definitely kind of direct people at what you want them to see in the way that like, you know, TikTok to me is just the same television I came home and watched every day after school, except it's personalized, Mm. right? And then, you know, instead of watching the Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island every day, they're putting you into a more and more and more narrow path. And really they are literally controlling what comes next for you. Uh So I I find this very challenging and it's what I meant when I said, I wanna be one of the first people off the internet. Uh If the product is free, you are the product. Uh 
and I would like to opt out of that world. That also, to me, is a big part of what blockchain will help humanity with. So I wonder if, if the internet was already at its current state when Elvis came along. The powers that be did not like Elvis. And I wonder if we would know about Elvis today if the internet of today was in place, or in the 80s, during the hip-hop revolution, if the internet of today was in place, the powers that be did not like hip-hop. There was a, a real concerted effort to ban it from existing anywhere. I think what's sure is that Elvis wouldn't be Elvis in the, in the form that we have him today because the Elvis that we know was tied to all of the technology of the time from the big, powerful radio show that he was first the on. The AM radio station. Yeah, it was called the Hay something. The Hay. Hayride. The Hayride, I guess, I think right? So. All the way through movies, Blue Hawaii, and, you know, all the way through to Las Vegas. And so, you know, again, my worldview is you cannot separate the artist from the technology. The technology created him. I don't think the internet would have censored him, but I think that he would end up appealing to a subgenre, right? To a, and if you think about it, it's already happened, right? Starting in the 2000s, pop music was no longer the world's most popular music. There you go, the fix is in. So what do you have? You have genres that are very big. You have rap music and you have country music, which are very niche. Mm -hmm. It's totally incorrect to say everybody loves rap music. It's totally incorrect to say everybody loves country music. Yet, they're gigantic. And, but what they really are is big niches. So I think you might have the same thing, right? If it was the Beatles or Elvis, it would be totally incorrect to say everybody loves Elvis, but he, would, could, he probably has better ability to be directly connected to the, the people that he is with. You know, a perfect example of this is uh, the Juggalo convention. Have you ever watched one of like the trailers of the show, the Juggalo show? It's so crazy because... It's a whole bunch of artists I've never heard of. And then the opening artists are artists I've heard of. You know, Juggalos be, being Insane Clown Posse, mm -hmm. they do a gathering of the Juggalos every year. It just happened a few weeks ago, which is why it's on my mind. And it's Have you been, ever been? No. It was actually Adam Horowitz that first told me about it and like sent the video of like, he's like, you gotta see this. And it's one of those things where you realize like, wow, this is really big. Yet I don't know a single person who's into it. I've yeah. never had a single person go, you gotta hear this, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yet it's gigantic. Yeah. And so I think those are the dynamics of, a, of an internet world where our neighbors are network neighbors, yet we live life in physical space. Tell me about living in Europe versus living in the US. Well, like I said earlier, you know, it's, I, I was sort of like, what's it like to be the American coming to, to Europe? And I really felt like, yeah, there's a new frontier. You were kind of alluding to it before and Tony and I have talked about this, Tony Fidel who moved to Paris around the same time as me. We've talked about this as well that we, you know, he's from Detroit, I'm from Northern Indiana. We moved to California for, for 20 plus years for work. And then ultimately we, we moved to Europe, Paris specifically. And it does feel like a new frontier. You know, you really get out of your comfort zone, different culture, different language. As somebody who's like obviously talks too much, but I've made my living by trying to communicate complex ideas more simply. Well, okay, now throw a big language barrier in front of me. So that part has been great and like personally gratifying, you know, just being uncomfortable and trying to find comfort. 
and exploring, but also for me, just getting out of that California bubble. Now, when I go back to California, I do see people as sort of living in a bubble. I remember what it was like when you really never thought about the rest of the world, right? Like Americans don't think about anything except America. Californians almost don't think about anything other than California. Absolutely, same in New York. New Yorks don't see past New York. And so just having, just kind of gaining that perspective, you know, my, my wife grew up with communism in Estonia until 1992 and she didn't grow up speaking the language. So, you know, the perspective is totally different. And I love that, you know, it gives a richness. I was mentioning the book, The Gene. And what that book taught me is that we spend all this time talking about our differences, but our similarities are far more interesting on a scientific level. And I, I feel like I've gained a bit of perspective on that. And I, I really, that's why I really lament the kind of current us against them. You know, Balaji, you know, basically says there's, there's not a democracy in the U.S., it's a tribalism. It is like one tribe that's very dug in and against the other one. It's not like, let's discuss our point of views or differences, differences in points of views and come to an agreement. It's like, I'm going to win and you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's no debate. Can't be. And I feel like I've kind of escaped that slipstream a bit mm-hmm. by exiting the U.S., being in a place that's very unfamiliar, and I see the differences. You know, at the, at the same time, I don't think if I had a new startup, would I start it in Europe? Probably not. You know, it's genuinely difficult. We were talking about this between our CEO at Ledger, Pascal, and the CEO of MetaLabel, Yancey, who used to be the CEO of Kickstarter, and sort of char- sharing stories. And Yancey has, just to, to sum it up, Yancey has many ways that the US government helped Kickstarter exist. You know, help them not only exist, but succeed, right? There give, is, give me examples of that. Example is that we were talking about is Kickstarter was hacked and their, their data was stolen. It was the FBI who alerted them and helped them solve the problem. Two and a half years ago, or three years ago now, Ledger's data was hacked and stolen. The French government have only come to, you know, wave their finger at us, right? And try to make it, you know, difficult for us. You know, it's just an environment of, of sort of toxicity for startups and no kind of acknowledgement that, you know, you need to learn to move forward. There's a system of checks and balances in the U.S. where legislation is quite hard to pass, right? I mean, the frustrating thing about D.C. is that nothing happens. The great thing about D.C. is that nothing happens. You know, from kind of a libertarian point of view, that's, that's, that's not a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Whereas the EU is fundamentally a regulatory body, right? They print regulation. And so you end up with, you know, just sort of, yes, it's thoughtful. Yes, it's meant to protect people and protect society. But the reality is you break eggs to make an omelet, especially if you're pushing forward. And by the way, I... With all of this, I personally don't know what to do with it. Like when I kind of li- listen to and read Balaji as an example and believe of a lot of what he's saying, but I don't know where to go from there. You know, there's the, the book I, I was mentioning, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. Okay, well, if you read that book, I mean, you, my takeaway, 
It's funny because the author actually kind of famously hates Bitcoin, but my takeaway reading the book would be buy Bitcoin, move to a remote place, probably in the US, <laughs> right? Um, I don't know, that doesn't feel like I'm contributing to the solution at all, right? Mm -hmm. That feels like I'm just sort of running away from the problem. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what the kind of solutions to the, the directions that we're, that we're going are, but I feel like moving from California to Europe has helped me maybe see some of it a bit more clearly. Yeah, sometimes when you move away, it's an interesting thing about music, like Led Zeppelin was playing American blues music, but it didn't sound like American blues music. And the reason is because of the distance, it's like they got to fantasize what American blues music could be. Exactly. No self-respecting American blues musician would play in such a bombastic way. Right. It'd be tasteless. Right. But we love it. Exactly. And, and same with the spaghetti westerns, you know, like the spaghetti right. westerns are much more romantic vision of the old west than the actual westerns there's something about creating distance that allows saw the same thing happen in hip-hop like curtis blow one of the earliest rappers was from harlem and he talked about wanting to be like the guy bragging at the party whereas he was around a lot of like gangster stuff but he would never sing about that that was because right. he was too close to it right Whereas Run DMC were coming from the suburbs. So Run DMC could kind of get more gangster because they were in the suburbs and there was some distance where you could romanticize it like seeing a Dirty Harry movie. Right, exactly. Yeah, I guess there's something about distance that makes it more, more commentary than authenticity or more, but yeah, it's fantasy. Fantasy is, the, is a better word. When you first got online, maybe not first, when you were online long enough to understand it in the early days, if that Ian projected to today, how different would your vision of what you imagined it would be, be different than what it is? It's absolutely different in every way. And, and that's the thing I keep in mind because you see this technology and you see the possibility. I mean, this, is, this has been said a, a million plus times, but it's correct. We always overestimate the impact of technology in the short term and we underestimate it in the long term. So to put a very fine point on that, for me personally, it was what we talked about. It was just about meeting people that like the same music as me and enabling that passion. When I first saw the Internet Underground Music Archive, which was like a pre-web music service, my immediate thought was, this is gonna change everything. You know, the, the, the powers that be, you know, these middlemen in music, are, they're, they're like, they're gonna have their day of reckoning and it's everything's gonna be like punk rock, right? Look at what we got even in digital music. It's just a different set of oligopolies. It's Spotify, Apple, YouTube, you know, TikTok, whatever. Plus, instead of five record labels, three, right? So we, we thought that it was going to deliver us kind of DIY everything but we just got a different set of oligopolies, right? So completely different. And I mean, if you have told me in 1995 that the internet would one day lead to Donald Trump being president, that just seemed absurd, right? But those two things are impossible to separate. You know, without the internet, you don't get Donald Trump as a president. Like they're, they're, they're impossible to, to extract from one another in the way that it has impacted culture in a, in a completely irretrievable way. 
I also think that it's important to realize that this is not necessarily the internet. There's something, it's about like moving toward more consumer choice. Posner wrote a piece around 2001 where he was basically saying that the internet has given us Fox News and the future looks more like Fox News because of unlimited consumer choice. And that point is, is that if you have two newspapers in your town, they're gonna drift toward the middle to get the most listeners and most audience. If you have an infinite number of newspapers, they're gonna try to appeal to big subsections. You know, again, rap music, country music, that, that analogy. Um, so I think that, that it was hard to see in the beginning that the internet would become so pervasive that everything could be unlocked. And then in fact, we had a like, sort of a false negative because we had, you know, Deliveroo slash Postmates in the late 90s and it failed. So then everyone went, see, it's not gonna work, right? So we, we, we had this false negative that would have told a lot of people that'll never happen. Don't worry about it. I would argue again, we're in that moment with crypto. Everyone went, oh my God, look what's possible. Look what's possible. Here's where it's going. We're gonna move away from banks. You know, this is not about banking the unbanked. It's about unbanking the banked. You know, and look, El Salvador is, you know, they're, they're becoming Bitcoinized instead of dollarized, right? And, and then, <laughs> Sam Bankman fried FTX, Celsius, everything else, huge crash. And the world gets to go, see, that wasn't true, right? Just like in 1999, 2000, we all said, see, we're gonna sell compact discs forever. This shit is bullshit. So now begins the 30 year now slow growth. Now begins the 30 year where people are like, okay, we can't go back to that, but you know, where do we go? And I find it scary personally yeah. because I think that, um, I think it's just as real, I think that as the internet, and I think it's just as unknown. Mm -hmm. So what is that big but thing? But it also could be good. It's not, it's not only, I mean, it's scary. The unknown is scary, right? but it could be as wondrous as terrible. Well, and I think the big question is, you know, are we at the end of that kind of post-World War II dollarized world of peace and world trade. You know, there are many people that believe that and it's quite convincing. If you take a reader or listen to that book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, um, you might be quite convinced that, you know, Bretton Woods set into place kind of, you know, an unprecedented era of peace and that that is coming to an end. I don't know, I'm a skateboarder from Indiana, so you're you not gonna turn to me for that. Remember but. when Radiohead left Capitol Records was a big deal because they're one of the biggest groups in the world leaves their major label, they go independent, they did it in a very interesting way to start with, and had seemingly as much success as they ever had before. For some reason, it's now, I don't know, 15 years later since then, mm -hmm. and it seems like all of the big artists are on major labels to this day. It's We, we thought that was like yeah. the straw that broke the camel's back, and now it's all turning indie, that did not happen. No, it's true. I remember when Drake released his record on TuneCore. Wow. And the music business was like, what just happened, <laughs> right? If that guy doesn't need us, then what's going on, yeah. right? But he's um, not on TuneCore anymore. Exactly. I think that, you know, and I, I, I agree with you. And that's a lesson I had to learn as well. By the way, anecdote that you might appreciate, the Radiohead Pay What You Want actually came out of Nullsoft and Winamp. Wow. And I think that, the, I know Chris Hufford would, would back me up on that, mm -hmm. who was a manager of Radiohead. They, um, Justin Frankel, who I mentioned earlier, is a big Radiohead fan. My ex-wife worked with Radiohead at Capital, and we all got introduced. And um, 
They liked him, he liked them. We spent a bit of time with them. And also they understood Winamp. But Winamp was shareware. You got nothing for giving us money, yet people gave us money. We made a lot of money on donations, basically. Um, we suggested $10, but people gave us, you know, we cashed $100 checks all the time. You know, so the last radio record for Capital was Hail to the Thief, and it leaked really early. And the rumor was Radiohead Kate's Capital, and they leaked their own record. So I wrote an email to Chris Hufford, and I said, is it true? Did you guys leak your own record? And his response was, I wish we were that smart. Yeah. What should we do? Yeah. <laughs> and I went, oh, man. My response was, put a PayPal link on the band's website and say, we know you already have the album. Pay us what you think it's worth. I was like, and you'll prove that people, I've said people- Are happy to pay for music. People are happy to pay for music. They didn't do it because of course, how do you settle that debt with capital at the end of the day if you do it? But then within Rainbows, they did it. I had nothing to do with it. When In Rainbows came out, I was as surprised as anyone, but it definitely, Chris would tell you, was sort of like the idea, sense. the yeah, seed yeah. was planted. The seed was planted, beautiful. But I, I totally also agree with you. And I think we all had a lot of um, disappointment. I know Radiohead was sort of disappointed with, the percentage of people who paid. Remember, Trent did that experiment with Saul Williams as a pay what you want. And I know Trent was disappointed with the mm -hmm. outcome in terms of like, you know, percentage. I thought people would, would be willing to contribute, mm -hmm. right? At the same time, we see it in things like Patreon. You know, Patreon shows there is an economy for patronage. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you know, a little bit of both. I think artists also recalibrated. You know, if you look at record deals 2006 to today, they're much more in the artist's favor, right, than, than they were previously. Mm -hmm. Because people realize, if I want an artist like Drake, there's certain things I need to do. He needs a label. He needs to be able to sign his own talent. He needs, the rights need to revert back to him after a period of time. You know, there are, there are a lot of things that are in contracts today that weren't there before when an artist has leverage, which they can have leverage in a different way than they used to be able to. Cool. Anything else you could think of that'd be good to talk about? I was trying to think of the things that um, I sort of nabbed from your book, those little points of intersection. Because I really, I really wanted to talk about the, that like sort of genre defiance. I really like the way you contextualize creativity as something that anyone can do. At the same time, we know that just because you can do it doesn't mean that it has universal appeal. Mm -hmm. And for me, the thing I feel like I bring to the table with that is that that's always interactive with the technology you have at hand. Okay, so if that's the case, we are moving into a very interesting era. And that is what I like about digital art and generative art and this is that there's simply new tools in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. And you just said a moment ago, that's not necessarily bad. Yeah. And I totally agree. And it's like, we would like to talk about things as good or bad. Is the internet good or bad? Is crypto good or bad? And my, my question would be, is fire good or bad? Is a brick good or bad? I mean, you can take a brick and throw it through a window or you can build, build, a building. Yeah, build shelter from the cold, right? right? It's just tools. It's just tools. And so what we have, what technology is, is tools in our toolbox. At the same time, we underestimate the way that technology shapes humanity. 
because you know if you pulled the thread of technology out of the last hundred years, everything collapses. You know, and that's what I love about it is that we do exist separate from it, but we also cannot live without it. And in a way, it's this exact opposite of what we thought it would be. If you go back to 2008, popular thought was smartphones are interesting tools for rich people. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I can afford to put down our smartphone. Mm-hmm. If we had zero money and we were hustling, mm-hmm. you better get a smartphone. You know, the person delivering food needs their phone you know, more. That's why I just encourage people to really think beyond that initial reaction. I think the human brain is so incredible because we hate change, yet we are infinitely adaptable. And so that causes these two things. And the one is you've got to go, okay, I feel that I don't like the change, but let me just think about where this could go from possibilities perspective. And I think that your book really encapsulates that in a lot of ways, like that keeping that young mind in really thinking openly about things. And then I think I just want to be sure I say, I I want to thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you. Tell me the story of uh, you sort of had a hand in um, the discovery of Kid Rock. So (laughs) it's funny because I was just rereading the blog post yesterday because I I sent it to you. It's funny that I, I wrote a post where I recounted it again right around the time when I'd first heard Rock and Roll Jesus and uh, before it had actually come out. But, uh, you know, in the early 90s, I heard Kid Rock at College Radio. And then at Grand Royal, we were throwing around ideas for stories. And I was like, I want to do Kid Rock. And everyone except Mark Lumen was like, that's a terrible idea. And I said, well, let me just do it. And if it sucks, then you don't have to print it. And Mark very quickly got in touch with his manager, very resourceful, uppercut management. And um, Kid Rock was super happy to talk to us. Like the Beastie Boys, getting a little bit of validation from the Beastie Boys was exciting to him. He was alone in Detroit, raising Junior at the time. Junior was a, was a baby. I thought he was gonna be like some kind of fake, white wannabe something else, and he just wasn't. We talked about Hank Williams. We talked about Bob Seger. He was so honest. He really knew who he was. We were both single dads. We're both Midwestern. I just fell in love with him. He was like, well, we're going to shoot photos for the article. And I was like, um, we don't have any budget at all. He's like, I'll come to LA. He came to LA. Eric Matthews shot all the photos. Amazing. He and I rented a van and we went to Vegas that weekend. It was the weekend Biggie Smalls died. I'll never forget. I could wow. always put it on a calendar because wow. I could just look up when Biggie. I remember we're driving back into LA from Vegas and we heard the news. And that's my brother, honestly. You know, I mean, I, we, uh, I mean, do we agree on everything in the universe? Of course not. But. I love that guy like an absolute brother. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I, Flom read the article, Jason Flom, Lava Records, Matchbox 20, read the article and called him up. But in those days, Bobby taught me something that I did not know was true, and that is that rock stars work, and good ones work hard. Flom offered him an advance. I think I know the numbers, but it doesn't matter, so mm-hmm. I won't say it so I don't get it wrong. Uh, so you know, he called me up. He's like, I just got this offer from Atlantic, and here's the offer. I said, what did you tell him? You know, we're kids. It sounds like a lot of money to me. He said, I told him triple it. He was like, I can make that at home in Detroit. I don't need that money. And I was like, wow. He said, I told him that I'm going to work harder than any artist they've ever had on their label. 
And I was like, rock stars work? Like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't even understand at all. But I get it now. And if you look at the story, you know, he made that record, the first record for Atlantic. People forget when that thing, I mean, that thing did what, 12 million copies or more. When that thing came out, it was crickets. I saw him at the Troubadour when that record, like maybe a few weeks after the record came out, the place was half full, Troubadour. Eminem was there that night. And Bobby was so drunk, I was worried he couldn't walk on stage. He delivered, of course, because he's a true performer and I've seen him sick as a dog and get up there and you have no idea he's sick, right? Because that's what he does. He works like a Midwesterner, but his job is being Kid Rock. But if you if you go back and you talk to Lee Trink as an example and like what they put him through in the first year of promo on that record, we need you at MTV Beach House at 2 a.m., okay, he shows up. We need you at the radio station and every radio station he walked into, he walked in and they were a doubter just like I was and he walked out and they were in love just like I was, you know? And I, I just think it's something that like a lot of artists that I've seen since don't really understand. It's not just about the art, it's about the work. It's about the, the shaking hands and the being a human being. And I think, yeah, I think Kid Rock, most people don't, wouldn't even understand what I'm talking about because what they see is a guy shooting Bud Light cans on the yeah. internet. <laughs> Um, you know, but, I can remember Michael Stipe telling me that they, their friends, you two, they hated them. I mean, they're friends, frenemies, mm-hmm. because you two would do anything. There was nothing for work that they would not do if it was going to advance the U2 agenda, no matter what it was. And it was intimidating for REM because they just wanted to make music. They didn't want to kill themselves. Then it was a big difference. Like you two would do anything. Well, I think there is that thing that I, I learned from looking at fashion designers that, a, that someone from the past is about collection and someone from the future is about connection. And to me, that's in the REM and uh, U2 example that you just, you just gave. Like U2 is about connection and, and you know, working at, you know, all the angles that they, that they could to get there, whether it was that MTV, you know, live at Red Rocks or, you know, the whole, as opposed to, I just want to make music and I want people to, you know, to buy it or to enjoy it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, I think that there's, I always thought, and I've never talked to John about this directly, but to me, I see a difference, and this is just as a consumer, between Nirvana and the Beastie Boys. You know, it feels to me, I didn't know him, but it feels to me like Kurt was almost resentful that people liked his music, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the Beastie Boys were actually like very, they cared a lot about exactly how it reached the consumer. They cared about the music video. They thought that was part of the creative canvas. The lyric sheet was part of the creative canvas. Everything. Yeah. It's all part of it. Exactly. It's not just, you know, let me make this music and then please leave me alone. Yes. Right? That to me is that, um, you know, collection connection, which is it. But also, as you know, like every artist needs to do, and I think you, you, you really like your book kind of oozes this without even needing to say it directly, it's whatever's true to the artist. Yes. And I really felt this working with artists on the internet too. It's like, you know, I would talk to artists who are like, I don't wanna be Amanda Palmer where I put my life on the internet. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, if you're Glenn Danzig, you shouldn't be. Yeah. You know, you actually, please like, give me mystery. Give me, you know, something else. So yeah. it's not a prescription, but it- no, but In some ways, the way that you do it different from everyone else is part of what makes it interesting. Exactly. 
in the same way I mentioned earlier that Americana stands in opposition to radio country. Why is it different? And knowing what you want to do is a lot of understanding what you don't want to do. That's the, the more clear those boundaries are, the more considered the art will be when it gets made and delivered, however that happens. You know, you, you've worked with artists all the time who had a point of view about what they wanted. You have a point of view as a listener in terms of what you want to hear from them. Mm -hmm. How do you square those two things, right? Because there's a truth in both. Mm -hmm. For the majority of my career, for the last, you know, 30 plus years, it's the name on the front of the record is the default. It's like, my name's on the back. So ultimately, it's their record, and ultimately, they have to live with it, and I get to make probably three or four or five more this year. They get to make one and live with it for sometimes a few years. So ultimately, it has to be their say. An agreement we make before starting any project is, we're gonna keep working on it until we all love it. So if it's a band, every member of the band has to love it, and me. If three people like it and two people don't, even though it's a democratic majority, it's not enough. And the chances are, when all five people like it, it's better than when just three people like it. So it's worth the extra work. And we don't get there through compromise. It's not about compromise. It's about continuing working until it's just better. It's not, is it choice A or choice B and there's a fight? It's neither choice A and choice B if there's a fight. We have to get to C, which is better than A and better than B, right. and everyone signs up for C. And that's a... But that can't always work. It, it always works. I didn't know it, like when I worked with the Beasties, one of the first bands I worked with, for example, they really didn't like that Kerry King from Slayer played a solo on, mm -hmm. on uh, No Sleep Till Brooklyn. I understood from a different perspective than theirs how cool that was, because of where they came from, they didn't see it. It was cool. Right. I fought for that. Right. I like your ABC thing, because I always think that nothing good ever gets built by a committee. It's not so committee. You, exactly. It's so you different get to than see. that. It's I different understand. than that. It's listening to your friends when they see something that isn't working as well as it can be, we want to get to where it's working as well as it can be. Right. It's not by committee. It's different than that. Yeah. Committee is the settling. Yeah. We're not settling. It can yeah. also be the dictatorship. Like in yeah. Tom Petty's band, it was Tom Petty's way. Everyone else could give That's ideas, yeah. but he was the final arbiter in Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and they, everybody in the band was cool with that because it worked, and they liked it, and they liked being in that band, and that, that's what worked. Oh. James Brown was like that. Right, very much so. Yeah. Fela was like that. Yeah, it's so it's not, there is no right way. It's yeah. like really just depends on whoever the group of people are and whatever agreement they make in advance. Right, the Tom Petty chapter of your life, I would love to know more about. I'll answer any questions you have. I mean, I just can't, I mean, I mean first of all, that's actually something that I got from my parents, right? But I also was loved as myself, as one of the few almost crossover points. I remember like getting the cassette of Southern Accents and like what that album meant to me at that moment. But then what you, where you, where you went with them and the way that you wove that together with sort of Johnny Cash almost felt like, because it was 
Heartbreakers, but then it was really Tom's solo. If I'm, I'm just look, going as a listener and like thinking about the lineage, it was Tom's solo thing, but then the Heartbreakers got woven in so much into the American recording stuff as well. I just don't really even understand how, like what was it? It almost feels like it was a collective of people who made lots of different kinds of music together. It was. It turned into that. It, again, wasn't intentional that it worked out that way. When I wanted to work with Johnny, I asked, I was working with Tom on Wildflowers, and I asked him what he thought, and he's like, you have to do that. That's a great idea. He was the only person in the world who thought it was a great idea. Wow. No one at any record wow. company, or no one thought that was a good idea. But Tom thought it was a great idea. And this is pre-American recordings, pre the first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we hadn't wow. made anything yet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, so Wildflowers actually predates? The recording of it. I don't. Oh, I can't okay. remember what came yeah, yeah, out okay. when, because Wildflowers took about two years. Got it. And how many years did you work with Johnny? The last 10 years of his life. The last 10 years of his life. And we made, we put out six studio albums, and then there's a box set called Unearthed, mm -hmm. which has outtakes. And while there were six studio albums, we probably recorded, you know, more than twice as many of the things that didn't come out that came out. How did you choose those songs? It was, um, a collaboration. Johnny would suggest songs to me. I would suggest songs to him. And then, you know, sometimes we came together. Sometimes he would say, like, I love the song One Rose. I had never heard the song before. He brought it in, thought it was beautiful. We cut that old country song. And then I would suggest, you know, obviously, if it's a Beck song, I suggested the Beck song. The Danzig song. Yeah, or the Danzig song, or whatever yeah. it was. The Leonard Cohen song. Yeah. The... No, Leonard Cohen might have been from Johnny. That's what I wondered. Yeah. Okay. So he was versed in those? Absolutely. As well. Absolutely, yeah. I think he brought in the Sting song. He brought in the, there's a Springsteen song, I think, that he brought in. Huh. Yeah, it really was case by case. Wow. And then some of the old blues songs I brought in. And right. just like thinking it would be interesting or, um, you know, the uh, memories that made her this, the, the I knew it as a Dean Martin song. Right. To me, there's something that, that you guys did with that project because what I remember is I was a Johnny Cash fan mm -hmm. and I remember seeing the Johnny Cash Walmart exclusive mm -hmm. and really feeling like that's sad yeah you know like it, it kind of broke my heart I yeah. was like wow that's where we are in terms of our appreciation of a great artist mm -hmm. right it's like narrow cast at a certain audience which Walmart I wouldn't say is narrow but it is it's like typecast mm -hmm. that's the right way to put it and what you did is I feel like you open something up that then it's almost like an appreciation for these artists. I mean, you did it with Neil Diamond and other people did it in other ways, I think. And, you know, I wonder even if, I don't know, it's hard to, it's hard to say like, you know, what brings what, but I do think that you brought like a reverence for. It definitely you know, opened the door. Cause I had other grown up artists contact me and say, based on what's happening with Johnny Cash, I now feel like I can try doing this. Like I can try yeah. to make something worth something. Yeah. I would actually say maybe even a great album. I, one of my favorite Willie Nelson albums is Spirit. I think it came out around 96. I'd be mm -hmm. shocked if that wasn't influenced by American recordings. I have no idea. In some way. I think you look at like Merle Haggard on anti-records. Come on. That must be. And I think that's a great album. If I, I, could, I think so too. If I could only fly. Wow. What I mean. But I can remember sitting down with Johnny saying, you know, we're the goal, like same thing with ZZ Top, saying, you know, our, our goal here is to make the best album you ever made in your career. 
And they would look at me like I was insane. Right, how could I do that now? Yeah, it's like, that's insane. Right. It's like, don't you know who I am? Right. I used to be Johnny Cash. Right, right, yeah, wow. Like, that's how they thought it. Like, it seemed in, impossible. Right. But just to allow that thinking of, what if? What if we make something better than anything you've ever made before? Yeah. Who knows? Right. Anything's possible. It's crazy. I mean, as a listener, I really... It's, I wouldn't say never, but I almost never listened to Johnny Cash stuff that you didn't record, even though I love it and I loved it before. Yeah. Before, but when I what I think of Johnny Cash, I think that's why that's why that's why I'm stuck on it, and I kind of like keep asking about it because I think it's so unique. Mm-hmm. If, thank you for the work that you've done. The Beastie Boys literally changed the course of my life, you know, and um, you changed the course of their life, and we all sort of put our put our hands in it. But also just on a personal level, like, you know, the amount of kind of joy and possibility. And I also, for me, the way that you have covered that spectrum, the fact that the same person, you know, made the first Danzig solo record and, and the Tom Petty records, that I feel. And it feels like something that the world tells you shouldn't happen. The same person doesn't make those two records mm-hmm. and the Adele record, mm-hmm. right? But it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, because you like them. It's like we're making things we like. Exactly. And music isn't in buckets like that. Right. Thank you. Thank Respect. You. It's pleasure like, uh, speaking to you, and um, I look forward to learning more from you soon. It's super fun. Mm-hmm.